welcome to the Directors Club with Brad and Al. We are podcasting as one of the sites and podcasts of the Now Playing Network. In each episode of the Directors Club, we take a look at the films of a single director. Their career touchstones, breakout films, personal labors of love, and hidden gems that may be found amongst their filmography. You can never tell what sort of themes and connections to other films can come up when you look at a director's entire body of work. Come join us on the film journey. The journey takes us today to the work of a pioneering comedic writer-director, one of the earliest people who got that designation, Preston Sturgis. Um, Hello, everyone. I'm Al. And I'm Brad. And joining us for this look on Sturgis's work is our colleague on the Now Playing Network. He is the co-host of Fresh Perspective, which has just passed its two-year anniversary when he's not putting out insights on Fresh Perspective or on his Letterboxd page, which had a magnificent review on the Paul Schrader film First Reformed, if I may say so myself. He's also a theater actor in the Chicago theater community. He also was able to join us earlier and a disc- on our discussion of filmmaker James Well. So welcome back, Jeff Breitman. Howdy, Jeff. Howdy, Al and Brad, and thank you so much for inviting me on. Very excited to discuss the work of Preston Sturgis. I have a confession to make. Even though um, I uh, enjoy old classic Hollywood, I uh, like to dive into the filmographies of directors that interest me. Before I was asked to do this podcast, I was not that familiar with Preston Sturgis's filmography. But now I feel pretty confident that I uh, understand him as a director, and uh, I'm excited for this conversation. Well, you are our golden age of Hollywood go-to guys, so we're really happy that we could uh, add another director to, to your list. <laughs> my confession is that my gateway into Sturgis is due to the Coen brothers. Uh, I'm sure for a lot of people, it's the same way. (laughs) They had their film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? A a pompous title that they talk with, which turns out to be the subject of one of Sturgis' films, and that got me into his work. But even before this podcast, I'd only seen three. So this has been a fun expansion, because I found that Sturgis has this very nicely done tone and consistently high quality of both humor and energy to the films that he has made. I think it's of this genre that's called, that's termed screwball comedy. I've found that it's kind of an exemplar about, about those. Well, it impresses me just how many kinds of comedy he seems to be the master of. He does the screwball thing, but he can also just go all out slapstick do uh, the kind of verbal gymnastics or really anything else that that falls under the the comedy umbrella. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think uh, in terms of um, his characterizations, the the characters that he imagines up, his strong point is in witty banter, repartee the bouncing back and forth between multiple characters. And I would say his other strong point 
is his recurring use of his band of brilliant character actors who were pretty much shuffled in supporting roles in every one of his major films. For sure. He comes at us at an interesting point in film comedy because the sound comedians have been around about 10 years now. But by the time we hit 1940, people like uh, Laurel and Hardy and the Marx Brothers are starting to fade. There's still a little bit more from W.C. Fields and the Three Stooges. But really, who Sturge's peers are, are a few other director auteurs of comedy. But it's Sturge's who specializes in almost exclusively comedy, where people like Ernst Lubitsch and Frank Capra and Howard Hawks all have some incredibly funny films of the era, but they do comedy as well as other genres, whereas Sturges really specializes. Now, when regards to the type of comedy, I don't really know what fits into sort of the screwball comedy. I kind of followed it like how that famous judge said about pornography that you know when you see it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, Hawks is notable for having... A, some like bringing up baby is representative of one mm -hmm. and it might have gotten its start with capras it happened one night so i don't know if you guys can help illuminate for me what makes a screwball comedy a screwball comedy i think what defines screwball is often kind of ludicrous circumstances uh kind of extremes i i'm thinking specifically of Bringing up baby with the uh, uh, wild exotic animals, um, where uh, people are thrust into um, unusual situations, kind of extreme situations, and the way that they react to them often in a, uh, a heightened, exaggerated fashion. So emotions are heightened. There's usually uh, an aspect of embarrassment or um, the appearance of something untoward. And usually the appearances of something shocking or shameful, then, then it, the emotions are, even, are heightened even further. It, yeah, it seems like most screwball comedies have elements of misunderstanding and confusion about them. Uh, they will often include mistaken identities. And just to kind of tie it into more uh, contemporary uh, comedy, uh, there was a bit of a resurgence of screwball in the 80s with films like Tootsie and Moonstruck. Uh-huh. Oh, that's so that's sort of the style, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, when As we go through Sturgis' films, there's some connections to some modern films that I think is going to be interesting to compare it to. Personally, I think Jason Reitman might be doing some very Sturgisian things. Oh, yeah, I can see that. I think also Wes Anderson has a, a, a Sturgis-like uh, a quality, although... Uh, uh, not not as not as funny as I think Sturgis can be, mm -hmm. but few people are. <laughs> that's that's Good that's point. true. There's some <laughs> that's true. There's some moments of just incredible hilarity uh, in these films that's going to make this very very fun to explore. 
All right, and we will start that exploration with Preston Sturgis's 1940 directorial debut, The Great McGinty. I want to grow up to be a politician and take over this beautiful land. I want to grow up to be a politician and be the old U.S. of A's number one man. I'll always be tough, but I'll never be scary. I want to shoot guns or butter my bread. I work in the towns or conservate the prairies. And he can believe the future's ahead. Which follows the rise and fall of the title character from his days as a tramp to becoming governor of the state. McGinty, a rough and conniving con man, shows promise to the local political boss when he multiplies his bribes by voting 37 times. Soon he finds that the same skills that make him an effective hood also offer unlimited possibilities in politics. This is one of the first movies that I tried to pick up on after I discovered Sullivan's Travels and thought, what to check out of Sturgis's work next? And it is an inspirational political story that is continually giving a reinvigorated energy and power from just the practical application of how corruption can go help people out. <laughs> <laughs> McGinty is a character whose enthusiasm yet practicality for just getting graft to help move things along reminds me of not, uh, of a similar way to the enthusiasm expressed by Kurt Russell's character in Zemeckis' early films, Used Cars. Nice, yes. He's played by Brian Dunleavy, who strikes this wonderful balance, as most of Sturge's leads will have to do, between uh, doing some awful things, yet still never losing the sympathy of the audience. So when we, we first meet him, he's this real tough character and 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 kind of kind of like uh rocky many years later he even manages to be endearing as he's shaking somebody down mm -hmm. yes it's a very fascinating balancing act upon him because he's clearly a guy who uses his fists to do the talking on many of an occasion and he shows an attitude of not taking crap from anyone and ready to confront people no matter what uh, the danger that might pose for him. It kind of reminds me of a very similar attitude contained by Billy Bob Thornton in Bad Santa. And yet, Interesting. He, and yet he makes that charming and likable and you want to see what happens next to him without, wish, without wishing that something ill happens to him. It's a really interesting balance that, it may hap that happens in this film. I was really surprised at how cynical and modern the sensibility behind this film was, uh, particularly the kind of open acceptance of the inevitability of corruption and the honest portrayal. I'm yet it's also a caricature. The character played by Akeem Tamaroff, who's basically the boss who is behind all the political machinations and is the one who's in charge of McGinty's rise through 
uh, the political system. He's kind of ridiculous, but he also has an air of menace about him as well. And um, there's some amazingly cynical takes. For example, he explains that not only does he is he in charge of McGinty, but he is in charge of the former mayor. And he's also in charge of the reform political party. <laughs> and his reasoning is, why should I starve when there's a change in the administration? Yep. <laughs> and it, it, it's interesting. When this film is made and comes out, it's 1940. We're in the height of the Great Depression. The country has been kind of starved for almost a decade. And uh, McGinty begins his career literally as a homeless man. And he is hired to vote for the corrupt puppet of uh, Akim Tamarov's boss. I mean, there, there, there's a kind of um, fatality that is surprising in a uh, film from 1940, I, I, I found. Yeah, it has machine politics pegged. And at the time, even though we still are in an era of the remnants of machine politics. In 1940, this is the way so many big cities were, were still run. It also comes out the year after Frank Capra's Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And it's uh, really interesting to compare and contrast the two films because McGinty is kind of like Mr. Smith Goes to Washington without Mr. Smith. Yes. That level of idealism and the solution that Capra tries to provide is, is practically absent here as we're following the equivalent of the Claude Rains character mm -hmm. as he tries to just use the system to his own ends. And the ultimate irony is that when his uh, secretary-turned-wife eventually gets him to act with a kind of conscience and try to use the power that has landed in his lap for some kind of vague common good that ends up being his downfall, literally. The framing device of the film has McGinty in some desolate uh, banana republic uh, being a bartender for these rough-and-tumble characters, and it basically says that this is the story about a man who made one noble choice and suffered for it. <laughs> Yeah, and it starts with a really fascinating contrast because the title card not only says that it's about a dishonest man whose problem was that he was honest for one moment and he meets a guy who has led an honest life but he was dishonest for one moment mm -hmm. and yet they both end up in the same place. And I really enjoy that part because in his first film as a writer-director, which is a very rare title for a person to have back in those days, Sturgis announces this a theme which comes from that situation and has informed a lot of his work, which is just how peoples can go from poverty to riches and back again so much at the whims of fate. It's such an arbitrary and yet 
absurd in a comic process about how people can move from all these different social stratums. I mean, it has to have come from, part of it has to have been informed from how many people have moved from the, from the Wall Street side to the food line side mm-hmm. as a result of what happened in the Depression. And it looks at that level of social movement, but also about movement across morality in such a, I wouldn't call it a mature way, but something that is an appreciation of how fluid things are. I don't know if that's a more mature perspective, but I respond to it a little better, and I feel it's a little more honest than something that Mr. Smith does, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington does. For all of its many qualities, it clearly has an idealized person and sees how the environment, how he fights against the fights against the corruption. But it's so of a piece in McGinty. And one of the things I really enjoy about it is how this guy who's clearly a hood, who clearly does not have any interest in the, in trying to address these issues at first, gets them organically out of tr- having this, in effect, a sham marriage and a sham family life. And that's really interesting. And I personally respond better to, how that comes around than then a goody two shoes guy who's then te- who's then tested. <laughs> well, well, a big difference in the two films is that even though it has its funny moments, Mister Smith is primarily a drama, and this one is solidly a comedy. So its laughs are more bitter and more enjoyable as a comedy in that way. I think that Mr. Smith is is the greater film just because it's doing so much more as far as its overall take on not just the corruption of politics, but how people could potentially respond to that corruption. But here we're allowed to just revel in the corruption. That's, that's true, but I do want to note that the framing device, as you put it, Brad, is really fascinating because it starts off, it kind of couldn't be more dark. McGinty stops a guy from killing himself. And when, then he starts his story. So the when you see the movie for the first time, all the events are tinted with this idea that you're trying to impart some lesson, to such an extent, to a guy who nearly was at the end of his rope. And you know, that... Darkness is a thread that winds its way through every film that Sturgis made. Mm-hmm. And and that is one of the things that I find so fascinating about the man is the sometimes jarring juxtaposition of moods and styles within the same film, much less within his oeuvre. Yeah, he has this, his film, it starts off with McGinty. It has that Simpsons level of comedy is this, omnivorous approach towards even though McGinty can be make McGinty can be making a potent satirical point upon oh well the graft money needs to come in this way and you, you have to go and make uh, make uh, this statement about well look at the baseball game see how many people are in the stands do you say that's 30,000 no think a little higher <laughs> and what the the number is not meant to be the number of people per se let's put it that way However, it's not above doing a great pratfall as McGinty is so unused to his mansion that he just keeps tripping in unbuilt, non-renovated sections of the mayor's house. Or the and, fact that McGinty and the boss eventually just end up kind of 
like slapping each other and attacking and falling over themselves, trying to punch each other. There's violence in The Great McGinty, but it's comical violence. That's really a great dynamic between McGinty and the boss, because even though there's a hostility as, as the boss feels like McGinty is too big for his britches, he also recognizes that this is one of his people. Yeah, this is and like so maybe that, the first, I just, sorry, I just want to say, this might be the first and possibly only political corruption buddy movie because those two guys have a real interaction even when the boss pulls a gun on him mcginty says oh you know he's not that bad (laughs) the production of the film was almost as interesting as what ends up on on the screen preston sturgis first came out to hollywood in 1929 he had had a couple of successful plays that ran on broadway and like Thousands of other writers, once sound was perfected and adopted as the industry standard, there was suddenly an influx of need for dialogue writers, for people to come up with storylines and lines for these characters to say. And there were only so many Broadway plays that could be adapted and brought in, like, uh, the front page, for example, was one of the first big talkies that uh, had kind of back-and-forth dialogue right at the cusp of the sound era. And uh, Sturgis made his name writing dozens and dozens and dozens of screenplays where by the end of the 1930s, he was one of the most prolific and popular uh, screenplay writers. But he always yearned to be a director. And he had a contract with Paramount. He had been turning in the script of the great McGinty every year for about five years. It it had existed in his drawer, I think, from the very beginning of his career as a writer. It was obviously an idea that he had a lot of thought. And they kept rejecting, we don't let our writers direct, what are you talking about? But by the time he had gotten enough clout based on the, the screenplays he had written... By 1939, that he allowed Paramount to purchase the screenplay for $1 if they would allow him to direct. Uh. (laughs) Instead of his normal fee, which was something like six figures, which was very, very high at the time. The highest salary, I believe, in Hollywood at the time. So he decided to take uh, this massive pay cut to have the artistic control And right out the gate, the first film he wanted to make was this political corruption story, which Paramount hated. They (laughs) slashed his budget. They disagreed with the hiring of uh, Brian Dunleavy. The executives did not like him. They considered this film a a B picture. It was not heavily promoted. It was usually shown on a double bill. They were shocked when it was a kind of runaway success story. It it made a bunch of money, even though Paramount kind of dumped it uh, upon release. Sturgis loved actors, and he oftentimes would hold court. He actually had a theater in L.A. that he owned and ran, and he loved being around actors, um, and he had a stock company, of character actors 
that he liked to hang out with, that he would have drinks with, that he would have salons where they would kind of discuss things. And he made a point of getting the clout necessary to hire his group of character actors and they first show up obviously in his first film the great mcginty people like william demarest and jimmy conklin but the great mcginty is the first time that any of us are seeing them yeah i also really like the lady who is one of the first ones that mcginty shakes down she does a proto shelley winters a turn as a would-be fortune t- as a <laughs> fortune teller who in a, in a great turn of the screenplay is how McGinty doesn't want to just beat people up until they just cause him enough trouble so he's finally like, fine, fine, I'll hang you upside down and stuff. <laughs> but he starts by being practical. It's like, come on, look, you're going to have to pay somebody off and now you just pay it to this group and we'll make sure you're covered. Well, you don't want to have the fire brigade call this place a, a, a fire hazard, do you? And she finally sees the error of her ways and not only pulls out a gigantic wad of money where she was claiming poverty, but then also uh, invites him upstairs to, quote-unquote, read his fortune. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think it's clear that she's not earning her money just from reading fortunes. Mm. (laughs) I have to tip my hat to Sturgis. He manages to find a way to evade that censor's knife in a way that's quite remarkable for films of that time. And that's going to come into play even more in some of his later films. Most assuredly, yes. Right, I mean, just look at how it just takes the example of the sham political marriage Mm -hmm. and takes it as a given. You have this movie that has such an astoundingly sharp, such a sharply cynical attitude that he sings, yet also features a a scene where a dash and pulls along his own doghouse inside a mansion. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) And I want to give special notes to the back half of the bookend. It ends in a wonderful moment to show how the boss is also still part of this guy's life. And they're still at each other's And will always be. Exactly. There will always be a boss, and there will always be a worker for the boss, the brawls. It's um, it's a wonderful political example of things staying the same that evokes to me the end of the Blues Brothers and how the guys got to do what they got to keep doing. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to talk about the one moment of the film that to me makes this, uh, uh, relegates this down to the level of minor okay. Sturgis, in my humble opinion, and that is the jailbreak. So through a series of circumstances, McGinty and the boss wind up imprisoned. And because the screenplay needs them to, they are immediately broken out of the jail by their their comrade. I, I found that to be kind of creaky and the gears of the needs of the story. The action wasn't organic and I was taken out of the film and I thought, uh, you could have thought of a better way to get them. I see what what you mean. It's zany. Yeah, what I've noticed is that as great a screenwriter as Sturges is and as interesting and pointed uh, as his stories are, he is willing to sacrifice just about anything for a gag. So even when he's got I'm this nodding. Re- yeah, even when he's got this really mm-hmm. cynical take on politics going, he'll 
go in that in that direction just so that it could lead him to more of his comic moments. Mm-hmm. Right. They're part of the jailbreak, involves them sneaking past a sleeping guard, and he, McGinty, takes the time to see that his name is in the paper and just take the paper, <laughs> take a paper with him. It's like, he doesn't want the guard reading about it. <laughs> right, right. It, it, it was a little too ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I, I guess I, I appreciate the attempt on his part. But, uh, um, in the course of his career, you can see him honing his craft. And I think every subsequent film he made got better. Mm. Well, he's honing his tales of fortunes gained and lost in his next film, Christmas in July in 1940. <laughs> this movie, Dick Powell and Ellen Drew play a young couple who have everything but money. They think that's about to change when Powell seemingly wins a coffee slogan contest, not knowing it's a prank put on by his co-workers. With the money rolling in, well, if you can't sleep at night, it's not the coffee, it's the bunk. Catch on, even though no one understands what that really means. <laughs> yeah, I don't... I'll disagree, Jeff, just a little with uh, the upward mobility of each film, because I actually think McGinty's a bit better than this one, mostly because I like the leads more. So uh, Dick Powell is uh, was, was known for two stages of his career. He started out as kind of the uh, wide-eyed boy in Busby Berkeley musicals. Yes. And eventually ended up as kind of a hard-nosed detective type in a number of film noirs. Here, he's more serious than I would like, because Mm -hmm. I think this is a character who is easily fooled and very much living in his own world, yet the performance strikes me as almost too grounded in a kind of a, an attempt at a leading man type of thing. Hmm. So I found that while a lot of what's going on around the main couple is really funny and really solid in its uh, take on uh, contemporary office life and economics and poverty, that there was a, a center that was missing. Hmm. I for, sort of felt that way, but I felt it was a, it could be personal for me because I knew from Dick Powell, but when I saw the movie, I first I had seen Dick Powell from various noir films. And so I'm looking at, well, what is this noir guy acting oblivious when he played a streetwise character in so many such films? And the, all the crazy Bubsy Berkeley things came later. And he seems a little older from that, mm-hmm. so it's he's like seems right at the midpoint. But that's so funny because I was introduced to him through the musicals, so I was wondering why he wasn't more like those goofy characters. Huh. <laughs> Fascinating. I mean, I'm a fan of both stages of Dick Powell's career, and I thought he, does, he, does, he did a great job. I enjoyed enjoyed Christmas in July more than the great McGinty. And what I find interesting about this film is the generosity of spirit 
and the class consciousness, which mm-hmm. is really fascinating. I mean, this this guy, he's so poor that the only way he and his girlfriend can be by themselves is to go up on their tenement roof. And when he's convinced by the machinations of his co-workers that he's won this amount of money, what he chooses to do with it is to buy presents for everyone in his neighborhood. Right. And the people in his neighborhood are are, are shown in various uh, uh, scenes, either yelling out the window at him to, you know, make a move on his girlfriend already because yeah. we're trying to sleep <laughs> or, or just passing them in the hallway and saying something. Just the the fact that the characters make this choice, I found very heartwarming and made me just like the film and embrace it. It was kind of like the ending of uh, It's a Wonderful Life, but without the kind of n- narcissism. Behind it. <laughs> you know, it was like the yeah. opposite in, in a sense. Like, yeah. like, like, like instead of everybody giving to George... He was giving to everybody. Right. And then the police come and, and but everybody in the crowd kind of bands together. Yeah, it seems like and and, and and the insult to the person who is trying to put a stop to it is who do you think you are? Hitler? Which uh, is a very potent thing to say in nineteen forty. The war had not begun for America just yet. No, so but Hollywood everybody knew was what ha- Hitler was doing. They did, but Hollywood was having cold feet about really taking on Hitler at this point. So when someone like Sturges does does it, it's important. Yes. Right. He managed to have a little a way of inserting that sentiment in in a way that James Well did not have on what he was his final real creative effort. Most assuredly, yeah. And and speaking on the on the creative effort that there is it's interesting that there is a Capra equivalent for this film as well. The, these two filmmakers are, at least in these movies, are on like these parallel tracks. Because this reminds me very much of the take that Capra did in a film called "You Can't Take It With You." Sure, which is based on a very famous uh, Kaufman and Hart Broadway play, mm, Pulitzer Prize winning play. But I find I'm with you, Jeff, in that the sentiment that both films have is more intrinsic to the world done in Christmas in July than is You Can't Take It With You, which is more about this wacky family that has all these different cultures and they all live in that house. And it's how everyone, and while it's not as singularly narcissistic as the ending of It's a Wonderful Life, which I, I completely agree with, it is still about the generosity of spirit is how everyone treats the people in this house. Definitely. It, and the generosity is expressed, however, outward and more part of the community. But then uh, in in Christmas in July, maybe I have Altman on the mind from our previous podcast. <laughs> maybe that has an influence, too. But that's something that I feel in Christmas in July does. Yeah. That I, I, in, in these first few movies, there seems to be this dialogue going on between... Sturges and Capra, and I think I think maybe uh, Mister Deeds Goes to Town is as much as a equivalent of this film, right? Because of the mm-hmm. rise and fall of fortunes. Exactly. I, I also mm-hmm. I I really enjoyed the farcical elements of how he ends up getting the check from the CEO of the coffee company, how 
the deliberations of the quote-unquote jury <laughs> about the coffee contest yeah. are, are kind of juxtaposed with Dick Powell's kind of journey of, of discovery and the fact that his fortunes change so dramatically. He goes from a drone at a desk to his own office. And um, when it all turns around, in the end, he ends up winning the contest anyway. So it's kind of like the universe was on the right track regardless of the screwball farcical elements. That, because of that... the second movie in a row where luck plays mm-hmm. a, a big role. But I also love the theme of how people look at you differently if they think others have approved of what you've done. Yeah, so his boss, his boss at the office doesn't have the time of day for this guy. But then when he thinks he's won this contest, all of a sudden, now he's someone who must be treated with respect. And he even says outright when uh, when Dick Powell wants to admit, well, you know, he didn't really actually win fair and square. And, and he's like, well, you know what? I don't know anything. All I do know is what other people believe. So if that's not true, then I don't think I can uh, back you this time either. <laughs> yeah, it's it's kind of a fascinating and subtle message, if you can even call it that. I think uh, I, I think it's there, and I just enjoyed how it had a, a a good heart and 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 a generosity of spirit that that I found very charming. Christmas in July, not unlike The Great McGinty, was also considered a B-movie. I mean, he was not given a lot of money for it. And it was his second smash hit in a row. So Preston Sturgis was directly responsible for two of the biggest successes Paramount had. The executives almost had no choice but to reward Sturgis with double the budget and access to some pretty big stars, which he utilized for his next screenplay. And that is The Lady Eve, released in 1941. It stars Barbara Stanwyck as a con woman who sets her sights on a shy snake expert, (laughs) played by Henry Fonda. Despite actually falling in love with her mark, Stanwyck's schemes are discovered, leading her to try again under a new identity, the aristocratic Lady Eve. Will Fonda figure out that she's the same dame? Yeah, it's sort of an opposite direction for a setting, isn't it? In that now it's almost exclusively the realm of luxurious ocean liners and meeting would-be princesses and uh, and royalty and just the various people who skim <laughs> off that environment. Yes, uh, in, in and I should also point out Henry Fonda, in addition to being a snake expert, is also a millionaire brewery heir. So um, the protagonists of our film are no longer struggling Joes like McGinty, like 
Dick Powell and his girlfriend. It's a millionaire, awkward snake expert <laughs> and a con woman and her traveling companions. Mm-hmm. The protagonists have become slightly more rube-like in these, in these first three pictures. <laughs> Down to Fonda's character, who unfortunately moves this movie down a notch for me because I couldn't agree more because Fonda is asked to play a room and Fonda is a phenomenal actor. And I find that he, a person who projects intelligence and empathy in almost every one of his roles, some level that he appreciates the situation and always is considering what's going on was very successful to play an oblivious dope who gets conned like crazy in the first part of this movie. Part of it is that you could get incredibly charmed by how Barbara Stanwyck comes in and just can take over a situation. I'm a huge fan of Barbara Stanwyck's, especially her early work, because she has this great take-no-prisoners attitude that she delivers so wonderfully in films like Golden Boy and Night Nurse and Babyface. And very few guys, even if they had Henry Fonda at full thoughtfulness, would stand a chance. But I think Fonda effectively plays a great dope who is so flabbergasted at her, at her charms that he will be, uh, he is completely susceptible. To a point, the movie, the movie gets to a moment where she is playing a different person who looks exactly the same. And as good as Fonda is, he ain't that good to play <laughs> someone that dumb. <laughs> yeah, I think he's that good. I, I love oh, I love okay. this film, and I think the two stars and their chemistry together bring kind of a, a different kind of magic to the, the great Sturge's screenplay. And I have this kind of general opinion that any movie is allowed one leap of faith, one unrealistic kind of strange quirk that is required just to make the movie work. And in this case, that quirk leads to some of the funniest moments because it's when she takes on the persona of the Lady Eve that the ridiculousness of it comes to, to the fore. Prior to that, yes, there's a lot of funny scenes, but they're very interested in establishing the love story and the chemistry between the two leads. But once you get to the second part, where Fonda is basically saying himself, well, they look so much alike that they have to be different people. <laughs> and and then William Demarest is trying to talk some sense into him and he doesn't listen to him. And then you have another a very funny supporting role from Eugene Paulette as Henry Fonda's father. He was my favorite part <laughs> of the film. And I got to say, uh, Brad, I'm going to respectfully disagree with you. This movie has a, a, a fantastic reputation. And there's a lot of hype around it that, that I could not avoid as I was working my way through Sturgis. So I think I had a lot of really high expectations that weren't matched. Hmm. And I got to say, 
I think it's Henry Fonda is what doesn't work for me. It's not that he is not a strong actor. He is a very strong actor. It's not that I don't believe that he's this kind of bumbling fool, because I do. But I don't understand at all why Barbara Stanwyck falls in love with him. She is this incredible, sophisticated, smart, sexy, amazing woman. Why is she falling in love with this drip? This idiot. <laughs> wow. Uh, and, and, and yes, young Henry Fonda was a very handsome fella. No doubt about it. Maybe it was just physical. Maybe she just liked his cheekbones. He had a, an air of innocence about him I that I, I think was, was charming. Mm, I mean, I, so, so much of this is subjective. So that's why I'll say, for me, mm -hmm. I found this film to be a little uh, underwhelming. That's uh, interesting you say subjective in that I completely agree with you, Jeff. Ah, completely. Okay. That's the other thing that just can't, I cannot get over this movie is Stanwyck just is such a magnificent presence and no one's going to scam her. No, no one's going to have put anything over on her. And I cannot see what about one thing about Fonda aside from how much money she can soak out of him. You know, it, it, it's interesting. Um, Sturgis does this frequently throughout his career in that he'll have couples on screen, but they're not kind of equally weighted against each other. Like Barbara Stanwyck, so much more thought has gone into her character and her motivations. And I think... Henry Fonda's character is—it's just not developed well enough. I don't think it's Fonda's fault. I—I—I I, I, I think it might be the screenplay could have gone through maybe another draft. Hmm. Maybe. I mean, she—I I will agree that she is the driving force of the film. She is the lead, and he is basically spending most of the movie reacting to her. Hmm. And I think you. You're onto something, Jeff, in the sense that it might not be just a matter of like a screenwriting flaw, but something about the unequal way that people in a romantic coupling or an attempted romantic coupling have these unequal positions. I, it harkens back to me about how McGinty has this marriage that is not quite legitimate. And I think here it's a case where maybe you can say that Henry Fonda is sort of the object to be pursued and maybe in a way how ladies in films that can be thought of as like damsels in distress that would that the main character who is a savvy operator can go and rescue maybe she thinks of Fonda as a sort of project hmm. because she uses her skills over and over in the con person realm to get putting to put into situations because because that's what she knows and that's what she's very very good at and I I think it, that might be interesting how it part of it is that it's a game maybe but not done in a manipulative way that she's manipulating him but more in the way that this is how she wants to get in on it and the idea is that she poses for the pose for royalty is just the the way she can the way she can use it so maybe that's part of what Lady Eve is trying to indicate. I want to ask you guys about how close do you think to 
the old biblical story, do you think, is going on in that you have the Lady Eve and Henry Fonda is a snake expert, which is, uh, ironically, he's such a miserable failure at detecting snakes in his myths. <laughs> so what oh, do you that's think, interesting. So what do you think that, like, what do you think is trying to say by the idea of also Eve tempting, offering some sort of uh, of temptation, and yet she also clearly has more knowledge, at least of the street smart variety, than our ostensible expert. The name Eve is not accidental. He's there. There. He's definitely playing with the the Bible story. Even in the opening credits, you have the a cartoon version of the snake. Right. Uh, I do think he's absolutely strategically equating women with temptation. Okay. Also, Eve is. Also notable, and this is this is a real reach, but I'm going to throw it out there. Eve is tied into what's called sometimes the fall of man, and it's pretty interesting to think of that phrase in terms of how Honda turns into a massive klutz, especially as the more as the movie mm-hmm. goes on. He's always falling and colliding into things. <laughs> so what on earth? So what is the movie saying in terms of like what makes? <laughs> the, is it a descent for a guy to have this per- person tempting them? Hmm. Uh, I mean, I, I, I think I think it's a co- it's a comedic exploration of the the, mm. the loss of control. Right. You know, that's ha- good. That's good. Man. You know, Fonda's character is all about repression and stiff upper lip and uh, uh, being very proper and and decorum. In stark contrast to his father, who is this brash kind of oversized baby. I, I love the scene where he, he wants his damn breakfast <laughs> yeah. and he can't get it. And he's just pounding on the table. And you get a feeling like this this is a man who's been catered to his whole life. Right. Uh, we, we first meet him. He's just singing out loud as he descends the stairs. In this bullfrog this voice. giant yeah. man with this gravelly voice. And the the effect... He, he, he's, a, he's a character actor who's been in a ton of of movies of the period, and it's always great to see him. Yeah, Paulette's amazing. He, he does a great job in as the father figure in It Happened One Night as well. Mm-hmm. I think uh, we should also bring up another important relationship in the film, which is uh, Barbara Stanwyck's character uh, with her con man father. Yeah. And, and I think they have a wonderful uh, back and forth because he is clearly taken on his daughter as a protege as mm-hmm. much as a daughter and you could see exactly where she gets Following it from. In her you know, father's footsteps. That's, yeah. that's, that's interesting. I took away from the film that they weren't actually father and daughter that they were ah. just fellow con artists and, and part of the layers of their scheme is that they pose as father and daughter. Mm. Um, I may have been conned. <laughs> but but I, I might not have been paying enough attention. So I, I can say that that father character has one of the greatest gags I've ever seen in a film. Just And part of an example of why it's so fun to look at Sturgis, because he just puts in these things that just go for a fraction of a second and... It's in the beginning of the movie where they're setting up for a card game, which they're gonna they're going to rook Fonda for some money, and they rope in the father character 
And he's just, oh, he's just playing as if, oh, well, this game, well, it's going to be interesting to try. And then just, just oh, this amazing move where his cards fly in from three feet away from one hand to another before he realizes, oh, shit, I should not shoot myself. <laughs> That's good. And he just hides, it, <laughs> hides his hands immediately. Yeah, it's a br- brilliant uh, uh, character work. <laughs> yeah, for just, a fr- for just a fraction of a second. Now, now, speaking of character work, I, I have to call out at this point, uh, Jeff, you mentioned the great stable of supporting actors yes. that Preston Sturges keeps putting in his films. And for me, there is the first among equals who really shines in this one and will continue to in some of future films, which is William Demarest. Yes, he Ma- may be my favorite of Sturges's supporting characters. Yeah, he, he is mine. He uh, A lot of people might know him more for, as uh, Uncle Charlie in the old 60s television show, My Three Sons, but In Preston Sturge's movies, he is the go-to guy for a laugh every single time. And I think this is the first one where where he truly shines as basically Henry Fonda's uh, handler who tries to keep him out of trouble. The most exasperated Jiminy Cricket of all time. Indeed. And and, and he keeps repeating the famous uh, it's the same dame line. And like you said, getting even more and more exasperated with each time as he's looking at her, looking at her sideways. <laughs> yeah, he might be, in fact, our audience surrogate as <laughs> to help us buy into the premise by, like, if you're just wondering, well, really? Can you just be that dumb? You, just, you always cut the Demers going, no, for God's sakes. <laughs> right, right. The voice of reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but done in such an exasperated package. Nobody does exasperation quite as well done as Demaris does. Brett, I kind of think how you feel about uh, Walter Brennan is uh, maybe partly to how I feel about Demaris in that nobody makes ornery so damn charming and uh and enjoyable to watch than <laughs> than uh me than what I think Demaris has to offer. Yeah, he's he's great. He's great. I should also point out The Lady Eve was one of the biggest hits of 1941. It grossed lots and lots of money. Sturgis was now three for three as a writer-director, and he was given more financing, more leeway, more clout. And um, I think, in my humble opinion, the next film he made is probably the high watermark of his career. Yeah, that movie would be Sullivan's Travels in 1941. Joel McRae is an acclaimed director of comedies in this movie, named John Sullivan. Despite his success, what he really wants to do is make a serious picture called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Exploring the world of poverty and suffering. When he realizes how little he knows about these subjects, he decides to head to the wardrobe department and it emerges in a hobo outfit and sets out to find out what life is like on the wrong side of the tracks. 
this is an incredibly impressive film. And one of the things that's most impressive about it is just level of difficulty. It's a comedy about comedy. Just about every scene, as this director tries to be part of this world he doesn't understand, almost acts as the film critiquing itself. Because as we're watching, we have a lot of questions about this guy's motivations, hypocrisies, and naivete. And as we're asking those questions to ourselves, the movie asks those very same questions. So it has this incredibly delicate balance of comedy and drama that really moves Sturges up uh, in, in my book as just this masterful filmmaker. I absolutely love this movie. This this might no might about it. This is my favorite of Preston Sturges's films and it's one of my favorite films in the history of cinema. I love movies that are about filmmaking, which this in a sense is partly about. And I love how it straddles this incredibly fine line between making fun of the kind of serious social realism that Sullivan yearns for and actually becoming that film for certain portions of Sullivan's travel. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's really quite remarkable. And then kind of juxtaposing that with really broad physical comedy. There are some fascinating things all throughout this movie. There's uh, a, a kind of race consciousness that I think is decades ahead of any other Hollywood main studio film. At the same time, there's kind of um, shameful humiliation of a, a black chef in the early chase scene where he's kind of made fun of and he gets pancake batter all over his face and it's kind of like a minstrel show joke. Okay. Um, and, 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 then, and then later, there is redemption when the convicts on the chain gang are brought into this incredible African-American church. And this extended scene where these people are treated with a level of dignity and compassion that is really rare in, in a Hollywood movie of 1941. The part where the african-american chef get, uh, has some horrible things befall upon him i'm totally on board with and i personally don't find it minstrel at all it's a very very madcap way of seeing how all of the hollywood sophistication glamour and luxury as these people take the the world's most uh, ostentatious winnebago not seen in a jack tati movie and use this to just follow <laughs> Joel McRae from like five oh, feet behind. Yeah, yeah. Photo. I mean, it, 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 it's ridiculous, and, and I'm, I'm taking these these I'm plucking these two moments from different sections of Sullivan's travels as a, a means to illustrate the kind of different levels that Sturgis is playing on. On one level, it's a romantic comedy as well between Sullivan and Veronica Lake's unnamed girl, and on another level, it's 
uh, about the pretensions of a director who wants to make this serious film. And on a third level, it's kind of about the, the realities that he's talking about. And on a fourth level, it's about how none of that really matters to this millionaire producer in his bubble. And really the, the quote unquote triumph, the irony of the triumph at the end is that he goes back to Hollywood where he had been returning all throughout the film and he decides that he's going to be making a comedy. Well, but, but the triumph kind of sticks in your throat as well. It's a fascinating movie that I, I can watch 30, 40 more times before I'll, I'll glean all of its secrets. What's your Sullivan count so far? Good question. I saw it once many, many years ago because it was on a list of like greatest films of all time. And I remember not being that impressed with it, but my mind was in a different space than I'd say maybe 10 or 15 years ago I saw it. And then I revisited it for this podcast and absolutely loved it. I've now since purchased it on Blu-ray. Thank you, Criterion Collection. I've now seen it three times uh, from start to finish. I had a similar evolution in, in that the first time I saw it, I didn't quite know what to make of it. And with each subsequent viewing, it got better and better. And I think that might have to do with the surprising variety of comedic to dramatic tones going going on because i think you come into this kind of expecting that it's going to be a comedy all the way through and the comic stuff is hysterical and you mentioned that winnebago chase scene and that is done in the style of the old max senate uh, keystone cop silent film very broad very slapstick and it's almost like each comic bit calls back to a different type of comedy like you mentioned the the romantic comedy and and uh and finally when you're actually dealing with homeless people with people who are suffering and downtrodden preston sturges does not go for the laugh he does not milk any of that for comedy because he, frankly, has more respect for the situation than uh, Joel McRae's character does. There's this concept of comedy, this concept of you don't ever want to punch downward, meaning you don't want to make fun of somebody who's worse off than the average person. What audiences like are when you make fun of the wealthy, pretentious person or the person who's so arrogant that they're full of himself. That's punching up. Mm -hmm. Sturgis never laughs at any of the downtrodden characters that populate Sullivan's travels. He's laughing at Sullivan and his ridiculousness. Or he's laughing at the ridiculousness of the studio types orbiting him or he's laughing at the repartee between Sullivan and the girl but there's a dignity to the suffering that people are enduring and none of this would work as well as it does without Joel McRae's great 
lead performance. He, he phenomenal. McRae yes. is known uh, often for cowboy roles and action movie roles, but he he's the lead in in three of these uh, Sturgis films, and he's so adept at moving from style to style, keeping himself grounded in the same way that William Holden is so good at. Mm, that's a great comparison. He has to have these highfalutin concepts that you may recognize as pompous, but he never feels pompous. No. no. And he's ridiculous, but his ridiculousness is... there. There's an earnestness to it that makes mm-hmm. it charming. For example... When he and the girl first begin riding the rails and they jump into a boxcar, there are two other hobos in the boxcar with them. And Joel McRae says to them, what's your opinion of the labor situation? <laughs> and it's just such a ridiculous question. Right. But, but he says it with, with such earnestness. He honestly wants to know what their opinion is of labor versus capital, as if this is what he thinks... He imagines, you know, people talk about when they're riding the rails. Well, the movie does a great job in the beginning because it starts off with a big, rousing adventure without telling us what's going on. The film within a film, yeah. Right. So, some some mythical European film that uh, Sullivan is screening to his producers to get give them an idea of what he really wants to make. You're starting a film which shows an action sequence on a train, which is ironic considering what happens in the course of the movie. Mm-hmm. And so 10 minutes into the film you have started, you get the end. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's... Uh, personally, I love that stuff because it shows a creative mind who's willing to look outside what conventional filmmaking... Like, I'm a gigantic fan of the animator Tex Avery for the oh, exact yeah. same reason. And I find that kind of creative inspiration shows up very often in, in Preston Sturge's films. This one, it is a great combination of the direction and the screenplay. Because that screenplay, the structure of it is something I find wonderful. The first part, as you guys were describing, has the has works through the silent film situation. While also showing how absurd it is for this guy's attempts to question the labor situation of the common man. Halfway through, it pivots to being a drawing room, sort of a drawing room situation as they return to the house. Which is, by the way, one of the many inspired points is how he can't leave Hollywood. Yes. It's, <laughs> it's, I think Sturgis is onto the same thing that inspired the great Buckaroo Banzai line, you know, wherever you go, there you are. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but after the drawing room part, it then explicitly contrasts Sullivan's viewpoints and the romantic comedy elements and is balancing it beautifully against the real situations as, and as you show the descent as their situation gets more and more destitute. It guides the audience wonderfully along on that level. And well, there, there and there are so many layers of irony to the construction of the screenplay and what's there on the surface as well. Mm-hmm. When uh, Sullivan tries to do what in his mind is a good deed, handing out five dollar bills to these fellow sufferers, in his act of Compassion and largesse is immediately met with 
violence and the actual trouble that he supposedly was looking for when he went out on the road. But it's real trouble that gets him sentenced to six years on a chain gang. That's right. And everything changes about the film during these sequences. The look of the film changes. It's yes. no longer shot as a comedy. No, it's there, almost a thriller. There are these scenes along this train tracks when his attacker is uh, run over that looks like it could be something out of Hitchcock. Yes. And, or Fritz Lang. Or Fritz it, yeah. Lang, yeah. And then when we've had kind of the quote-unquote safe version of destitution, but now that he's in it in a way that he can't get out of, we are unmoored from any kind of safety or, or set of expectations mm -hmm. that we have as viewers as to what's going to happen. It's such a gigantic irony that he sets out to look at troubles and he gets a trouble worse than he ever mm -hmm. would have imagined. Yeah, there's also a shorthand that Sturgis uses throughout the film. You know exactly what kind of a novel Oh Brother Where Art Thou is. Yep. And that title is so brilliant. And then the titles of Sullivan's hit comedies, Hey Hey in the Hayloft, <laughs> Ants in Your Plants, so long, sarong. So I mean, there you 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 don't need to have a lesser filmmaker would have inserted like a clip and would have gone to the trouble of making like a silly clip from that film to show you that Sullivan used to make silly comedies. All you need with Sturgis is the title, and you know exactly what that film is going to be like. Well, yeah, that's partly a... helped by Veronica Lake's banter as they describe a situation like, oh, that movie? That was really great when that guy fell down a barn and, and he sneezed at the sneezed horse. Sneezed at the horse, and the horse <laughs> sneezed back. Yeah. Yeah. Which is exactly what happens to Sullivan later on in the film. It's, it's brilliant how self-referential... Sullivan's Travels is. Right. Um, at the very beginning, he's talking to the producers and he says he wants to make a film about suffering. And they interject, but with a little sex. And that's exactly what Sullivan's Travels mm -hmm. is. It's, it is a film uh, that yeah. explores human suffering and there's a little sex on Sprinkled. And it even has a line that just slides right over where he says there's a where where he returns to his Hollywood studio for the second or third time early in the movie and says well you have to let, help out the girl here and his uh, producers say where's the girl in this picture and he says there's always a girl in this picture <laughs> yes yeah that, that, that actually happens at the police station yeah. after he's arrested for stealing his own car and there's a yeah, there's... super fun sorry Brad I just want to add there's a super fun ironic take on the statement of empathy where it is walking a mile in another person's shoes as his shoes are stolen by <laughs> the uh, homeless guy who eventually hits him over the head and steals his money right, right. and then he gets on the wrong side of the tracks <laughs> ever <laughs> yeah all, all this also shows what a, a great satire of hollywood the film is it, it's almost like a precursor to the player ah. in that way in in its uh, cynicism towards the hollywood machine yes and he even name checks his idol uh, ernst lubitsch a lot and 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 even talks about frank capra in exactly com in comparing what kind of director sullivan wants to be <laughs> uh, yeah, they were seeing a light. Who do you think you are, Capra? Right. <laughs> right, yeah, no, I mean, there is so much to point out uh, about this movie. I just, I, I absolutely love it. There are two things that 
stick out in my mind that I feel are important to mention. One of them is that opening scene with him and his two producers. Sturgis was always fighting with Paramount throughout the course of his career there, despite the successes that his films made. At almost every point in his time there, he was walking a fine line between losing control and final cut from the studio. And uh, one of the ways in which the studio maintained control of their films was by insisting on directors shooting coverage for scenes so that if they didn't like the way it was going or if they felt it was too artistic, they could recut it the way that they wanted to with the master shot. Sturgis famously did not shoot coverage for this opening scene and instead elaborately choreographed a three and a half minute multiple camera movement scene where they move around the producer's office in various ways so that there would be no coverage. The studio could not edit it around him and he could uh, maintain control of the film at that point. He'll do these long takes a number of times throughout his career, all of which came out before the famous long take in Orson Welles's Touch of Evil. Mm. Sturges was a pioneer of this kind of filmmaking. Yeah, and uh, uh, the, the second thing is the level of detail crammed into almost every frame of this film is extraordinary. There's one moment, it's part of the montage of Sullivan and the girl wandering through the various shanty towns after the halfway point when they um, go back out on the road. It's a scene without any dialogue. There's just music playing over the soundtrack. The two of them are walking at night through the woods. They pause and look up at the moon, and that's the entire shot. But they walk by a pair of legs dangling from a tree. <laughs> Someone has hung themselves, or really, someone's been lynched, and they don't remark upon it. The camera doesn't focus in on it. You could miss it. It's just there, and I did miss it the first time I saw it. It was only the second time that I was like, what the... Just the fact that, that Sturgis added that detail is, well, it, it, it's macabre and funny and up, upsetting at all at the same time, which is kind of... Really interesting. Mm -hmm. Oh, the sophistication of this film is off the charts. There is such a great level where you can like it for the gags and the and the energy and the great contrast between this the absurdity of his mission and what he eventually encounters, and it just adds to it, adds to it, adds to it. Let's to give two examples that I really enjoy about the film is that. He gets a lecture about how silly his mission is by his butler. And his butler gives words of wisdom. Really. Incredible words of wisdom, but not done like a William Demarest street smart butler. He's just a proper British kind of guy, but he just gives this really wonderfully written section about saying how you think poverty is just a lack, but what it really is is a, it's an active contagion. And I had way, I've had way too much experience. The fact that you put those words in the butler's mouth is so, such an amazingly nice touch. 
And that opening section that you referenced, Jeff, is super cool, too. That un- Because within that unbroken shot, for one thing, it's great apart from the fact that you can't – producers couldn't mess with it. But it's also great at developing how the characters, as these two producers are vying for control over McRae's character, the, where they're positioned and where they move around, uh, shows the different ways the argument, their arguments are succeeding or failing. They make a good point about how Sullivan doesn't know anything about suffering and how they struggled <laughs> to get by, but they're just bullshitting as well right. as Esther just yes. clear as soon yes. as Sullivan yeah. Exactly. And that's such a great move because right before that, this is super early in the movie, McCray's character comes to that realization. The realization, you know what, wait a minute, I don't know crap about anything. And that's a real refreshing moment for audiences at they're saying that's true. He's got a change of a change of heart, a change of outlook. And as soon as you realize that, and he leaves, then the producers then drop the <laughs> pull the rug out from you. You with this whole reveal that their hard luck stories were BS as well. So right. really, super great. How many levels of sophistication there are? So with all this richness, I also want to bring up what ends up being the ultimate message of the film, which I think is also wonderful in that as he's uh, in prison with uh, his fellow convicts, they're watching a Disney cartoon in this black church. And everyone, despite their misery, despite their hardship, is laughing and finding escape through the laughter. And Sturge's can be sentimental at times. And, and this is a, a point where it's really well-earned in this idea that, yes, we do need to understand the suffering of our fellow human beings, but at the same time, there's very little that's more valuable than creating joy in the world and making people laugh. That's a great point. It also ties into what makes that part of it a great artistic sentiment. What, what I mean by that in that it's not going one way or the other to say that someone's outlook should depend on the oh brother where art thou route of saying would you look at these guys suffering nor does it make the point to say what people need clearly is rampant escapism to get out of their dreary lives but it looks at both and shows both at once. Mm-hmm. So it's up to you as a viewer to say where do you get the mission of making creative art like what he's doing. Well, what's fascinating to me about the film is that it embraces both of those worldviews and it ridicules both of those worldviews at the same time. It's extraordinary. It's like wheels within wheels. It is an extraordinary movie. And I want to add that one other level of sophistication that I particularly enjoy about it is it looks at... The idea of identity and I guess the sense of a person versus his place in the world in a really interesting way. Like I said earlier about the Buckaroo Bonsai quote, right? Wherever you are, wherever you go, there you are. If you think about it a certain way, McCree's character can go to however deep the hobbles are, but he will still be himself. Or will he? Right? Note that, like, one, how does he get himself out of his dire situation? By announcing he is his own murderer. 
So, and, and of course, the thing that got him into that dire situation was that someone has the only identifying uh, information from him from his shoes. So, where is this person? I think, and, and that's a great contrast with Veronica Lake's character. And she's also found herself out of her control of her situation to the extent that she doesn't even have a name is, is a really interesting, another level that I think you're so, so right, Jeff, and how it's looking at these things, but as soon as you think it's sentimental towards one or didactic towards an a- attitude, there's other levels to it where he's giving it another look and another perspective. And I think that works the, the more times you see it, the more you appreciate all the different kind of perspectives that he's able to do by use of irony, the use of comedy, and the different phases that the movie moves through as it goes through, winds through its story. Yeah, and if I can just say one final irony is that despite its reputation nowadays as an essential American classic, it was not a hit Ah. for Sturgis. It flopped both critically, who critics at the time... Most famously, uh, Bowsley Crother in the New York Times did did not enjoy it. Um, it did not make a lot of money. Uh, it was the first Sturgis written and directed film that wasn't a great big box office hit. It might have had something to do with the fact that three weeks after it premiered was Pearl Harbor and oh, the beginning of World War II. Yeah. So uh, timing had a lot to do with it. And obviously, you know, Sturgis wasn't... Couldn't control that, but who knows if it had had a different experience when it was first released, if it would have had a a different reputation. But as it is, it it took about 25 to 30 years before it began being looked at as a a great film. Well, if the key to uh, financial success for a Sturgis film is a focus on screwball comedy, he's going to give us plenty of that in his next film. Claudette Colbert and Joel McRae play a married couple with something missing in The Palm Beach Story, released in 1942. What's missing is lots of money. And if McRae can't provide it, Colbert will find someone who can. Luckily for her, she meets a gazillionaire played by Rudy Valley on a train. Less lucky is that her husband is close behind and has no intentions of watching his wife marry another man. The attitude of romantic coupling, it approaches the sophistication of Sturgis's hero Lubitsch in this one. Such a fascinating dynamic is going on where the wife feels the best way she can help out her husband is leaving. And even more is that what she has to offer for her success in her own way is explored in a way I find quite shocking for a film that is in the midst of the Hayes Code. Mm -hmm. Well, just... Like with the Lady Eve, you have another romantic film where the female part of the romance is by far the one driving the plot and making things happen. She's got an entire 
strategy in her head that will somehow lead to happiness, not just for her, but for her husband who she's leaving and doesn't bother to explain how her leaving could actually benefit him. (laughs) Screwball romance has often been called comedies about remarriage because usually Hmm. like in classics like His Girl Friday and the Palm Beach story, the characters begin the film either having been broken up or they break up at the beginning. And then the plot and the machinations of the script are about them getting back together with each other. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the girl is with another guy who's the wrong guy and that guy is called a Baxter. There are, are all sorts of like templates in place for these kinds of stories. And what Sturgis does so well is he kind of pushes them to the point of absurdity and then goes even further and and then just says, what the hell, they've got identical twins, let's marry them as well. <laughs> he just throws it all in there, but it's going by at such a quick pace that you enjoy the delight of the repartee more than it makes any kind of logical sense. Hmm. Well, I have to say the film is fair by introducing itself in one of the most creative ways I ever saw in a movie. That It's so brilliant how the opening, I'm not going to spoil the individual details for people to see it, but it basically amounts that The characters, before they start the story we're watching, have this amazing adventure that that got them married in the first place. And it just gives you these hints about that, and then it starts. Right. Which also has a great shot of them during a marriage ceremony. As the camera zooms out, suddenly letters appear saying, they live happily ever after. Or did they? Or did they, in a further zoom. In a great organic way of just having these thought balloons of the movie up here <laughs> now in, in the in, in the interests of full disclosure again there's a difference between watching the film for the first time and watching it again that's right because when you watch it for the first time that opening montage makes zero sense oh yeah and when you get to the end where the twins are revealed and i can't emphasize how randomly this is shoehorned in they literally have reached the conclusion of their story and then it's like oh by the way we both have identical twins now this is audacious and interesting but at least for my first viewing i thought found also found it incredibly off-putting i'm like what the hell is this i have to agree with you brad (laughs) i i really enjoyed watching the palm beach story the first time i saw it But the ending kind of soured it for me. I was like, oh, come on. How ridiculous. The more I thought about it, and when I saw it a second time, there's something so audacious about it. it, I almost believe it's Sturgis saying, everybody knows that you have to wrap up a romantic comedy with the characters pairing off. But we've got these four characters... One of them is a brother and sister, so they're not going to be paired Mm -hmm. with each other. (laughs) But there's something kind of perverse about just 
cloning Joel McRae and Claudette Colbert and giving one to each of them so that the you have the happy three couples. It's it's uh Although it is ironic that part of the schemes earlier in the film is how the couple poses as brother and sister. Yes, it is. Right. Yes. So maybe he stuck that perversely in as well. I was at this point I I had seen enough Sturgis movies that the, while I'm looking at the pose of this couple pretending to be brother and sister, the thought of them being caught in a loving embrace, it was incredibly high. I figured there is there it's very easily conceived that Sturgis would do that. It was not easily conceived to think about the ending of, <laughs> of the ending of what actually happens, which might as well have had them uh, uh, go into space to return to their home planet to go and have events resolve. I think you're onto something though with why that ending happened for two different reasons. For one thing, if you pay really close attention, maybe too close attention to the ending, you will notice that both cloned Colbert and cloned McRae both seem confused as to why they're there with their, (laughs) the couple they're a part of. So in that way, I feel Sturgis might be making an explicit point on on, yeah, okay, these guys have to be there. And why do they have to be there? Because Hollywood was in the midst of this of these formulas that people were almost as rigid as the slasher movie formulas that were parodied so brilliantly in Cabin in the Woods. Well, you these know, and ironclad rules of how things should turn out. And the thing is, so many of these movies were cranked out that audiences knew what to expect. And that's why Sturgis kind of stands above the rote comedies uh, of that time because he knows what the audience expectations are and he kind of defies them or he twists them or he he adds a little perverted flip that is, that is so fascinating there are all sorts of fascinating little details frankly in all of his films but speaking specifically about the Palm Beach story there's one scene after she meets Rudy Valley's uh, gazillionaire where he takes her on a shopping spree and there is a item by item listing of what dresses, girdles, brassieres. In a fun moment, there is one that says corset and crossed out and then... <laughs> yes, yes. Well, what all of these things cost circa 1942. Uh, I found that to be kind of fascinating. And then there, there are these little bits where she's trying to get away from her husband, Joel McRae, and she gets into a cab and she's like, t- she's talking to the cab driver and she's like, where would you go to get a divorce? And he goes, well, if it was me, I'd go to Palm Beach. And he gives all these reasons why. Now, Sturgis knew Palm Beach intimately because one of his four wives was the heiress, Eleanor Hutton, and they would spend their winters at the Hutton Estate in Palm Beach, a little mansion whose name happens to be Mar-a-Lago. And uh, in the 1970s, the family uh, sold that property to uh, our current president. No shit. Yes. So Sturgis knew that high society lifestyle. Fascinating, and and not just for its current status in the news, but because... It gives a ta- uh, hint as to how biographical is the ideas going on in the Palm Beach story. Like, yeah, like who, which, like for example, 
did a wife leave him for a particular reason that he wanted to reference to say one thing? That, that's an interesting question, and I don't know enough about his private life to know exactly. Um, and the um, documentary I've seen about Sturgis only references his wives in the context of the fact that he had three very unhappy marriages and one really happy long one that lasted until he passed away. Okay. Um, so I, I don't know how autobiographical it is. I do know that he was intimately familiar with the very, very wealthy that he and his wife at the time would hobnob with the Rockefellers and the Gettys and the, the titans of American industry. And this type of character is really parodied well in Mary Astor's character as the sister of Rudy Valley. Yes. yes. And, and she is played so, she plays it so broadly that you could just feel the sarcasm dripping out of every syllable. She is a, a really fascinating character, and I really want to give props to Mary Astor for uh, a really strong well. And I would like to point out that she made this picture right after making the Maltese Falcon. So talk about a shift in tone. She she gives a really strong comedic performance, even though she hated the Palm Beach story. Hmm. She hated working for Preston Sturgis. She hated being a blonde. And she hated doing comedy which I think is fascinating because she does such an extraordinary job in the movie. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the best performance I've seen her give. She's so amazing at portraying a someone who's very aware of her ditzy nature of jumping into romantic uh, encounters and her treatment of her boy toy, uh, uh, Fido, was it? Uh, Toto. Toto, the uh, Italian. Specifically named for uh, Dorothy's dog. Is that right? Okay. Yeah, her treatment of Toto is hilarious. Nitz, Toto, nitz. Go away. (laughs) And he doesn't speak English, so he's just constantly hovering around, not understanding that he's over with. I think maybe Sturgis put a finger on the Cato Kalins of that high society <laughs> yes, as Toto yeah. would keep just imposing himself wearing a tennis outfit here a croquet outfit there and always taking occasion to um, grab some snacks snag some food and in a really fun one he's resentful that Astor's character is dancing and so he's playing solitaire and he's so angry staring at her that he isn't noticing that he's not actually licking, successfully licking his thumb to pick the next card. Yeah. His thumb is like a well, half a foot away. It's really, it's really fascinating that he made this film right after Sullivan's Travels because Sullivan's Travels, for all of its class consciousness and mockery of class consciousness at the same time, this is a film that's the Joel McRae and Claudette Colbert characters are in, in need of money, yes. But once Colbert gets on the train and gets involved with the Ale and Quail Club, yeah. we're, we're, we're pretty much in the world of millionaires and people with lots of disposable income. It's interesting that this is the first film Sturgis makes after the U.S. enters World War II, mm. that he chooses to go sort of back to the Lady Eve context of high society and repartee and romance there's no specific mention of the war the way it's referenced in uh christmas in july there's no specific mention of poor people the way it's shown in mcginty and sullivan's travels it's all light 
and frothy and wealthy people in beautiful mansions. The problems are, is McCray going to get the money to get his ridiculous airport in the sky off the ground? Or will Colbert end up with Rudy Valley's gazillionaire? Which is a great use, by the way, the use of spectacles and the, the expiration of said spectacles is done to great effect in this movie. <laughs> yeah, and Rudy Valley does a pretty good job. I mean, he the, the, this, is, this would be the equivalent of Justin Bieber redefining himself as a comedic actor. Just- he was one of the most popular male singers of the 1920s and 30s. Rudy Valley reinvented himself. He does a, a really good job of playing this kind of uptight, clueless but still sort of charming, nice guy. Yeah, that's really fascinating, Jeff, because if he did have this cachet as a teen singing idol, what an interesting choice that when you're going to play a role in a film, it's going to be as the third to fourth wheel. And maybe that explains why there was some pressure to give him a happy ending. That's a really good point. And a reference to his crooner past is obviously in the scene where he's serenading Colbert. The song he sings was one of his biggest hits. Mm. Damn. All right. That's... So so there's a level of meta even in in the light froth of the Palm Beach story as well. That's... I really, really like how that scene up to the very last twist concludes... The meta level is awesome. I didn't even realize. Yeah. That because I didn't realize how big this, how big Rudy Valley was. But I was very impressed by how it attains this Lubitsch sophistication. Because what one thing that Lubitsch does so well is he has an empathy and appreciation for everybody's situations in the films that he had made. Most notably, like, in Trouble in Paradise is just magnificent how he looks at each person's side and sees a complexity in all of their approaches. And it gets close to that level here. You think about what's going on, and first off is that Rudy Valley's character is not treated like, say, Ralph Bellamy in somebody of the Cary Grant movies where he's just clearly the chump who the female character needs to overcome to get to the right person she needs to be with. But also, look at what he's doing. He is clearly singing his heart out, and it's his song and his affections that's leading these two people to reconsummate their relationship. So something that somebody gives fully of himself so that the other two can just reconnect in a great rhyme to the way that she couldn't get out of her dress earlier in the movie. That's an amazingly nuanced take on things. But I think also people could react badly about that because the movie to this point, it's not damning him, it's not showing him as a chump that you should just dismiss. But then he does clearly does not get a happy ending. So Sturgis... In his attempt to go and say, respond to producers who want to give a happy ending, decides, ironically for a movie that spends a lot of time on a yacht, he decides to go overboard in that example. Which, Excellent pun, Al. <laughs> which, by the way, I was very, very charmed by Colbert in this 
film. She's a great screwball comedian. She is delightful and beautiful, and uh, you can see why everyone would give her... Like, you can see why the Weenie King likes her so much. And everywhere she goes, she's... Basically, given a free ride, and uh, mm-hmm. and you, uh, but, totally but, under- you totally understand why. And yet, in the midst of that, she does screwball pratfalls like yes. anybody else could. But my favorite moment on there is there's a point where Rudy Valley's character is helping her out on the bunk uh, to in the top bunk of a train. She keeps uh, stepping on his spectacles. Exactly, and they, when she says she doesn't have any clothes to wear, they say, "Well, maybe we can bring the clothes on a stretcher." To which he says, ah, uh, yeah, I think that might be stretching it. <laughs> Which is clearly the biggest witticism this guy is like, fuck. he may have even written it down. It was so brilliant. He was so brilliant for him. And Colbert does just the perfect level of crinkle in her nose and how awful that is that I just, I love that little moment. <laughs> but if this approach towards male-female relations was sophisticated, the look on small town values and American values in general between men and women is given a huge focus in his next film, The Miracle of Morgan's Creek in 1944. Please, Papa, don't preach. I'm in trouble deep. Papa, don't preach. I've been losing sleep. But I made up my mind. I'm keeping my baby. Oh, I'm gonna keep my baby. I'm gonna keep my baby. In this movie, Eddie Bracken is Norval Jones, a meek young man in love with Betty Hudden's Trudy Cockenlocker. Trudy wants to send the soldiers off to World War II in style, but a knock on the head and an ill-advised marriage leave her with a baby on the way and no father in sight. Might the noble Norval be called upon to save the day? In the spirit of the message of Sullivan's Travels, I have to go with what I think is by far the funniest Preston Sturges film as it being his best film. I love this so much. Very rarely for me do I run into a film of this period where I am laughing out loud just throughout. Every character is a masterful comic creation. Every type of comedy is done at the highest level here. There are definitely interesting messages also in the film about being an unwed mother, unwanted pregnancies, and whatnot. And we're going we're gonna to talk about how uh, this film was very creative in getting past the censors. But at the end of the day, I think comedy is one of the hardest things to do in movies. And a movie that does it this well, I, I just am in awe of. What impresses me so much is is something that you uh, referenced, Brad, and, and that is the, just the audacity of the storyline and the fact that he tells this story, which really, if I can be forgiven for boiling it down, it's about women's sexuality and men's fear of it. And the ridiculousness of that. Betty Hutton, through the machinations of the plot, she is a party girl. And 
basically, if we take it for granted that she is not taken for granted, that she is a willing participant in what the plot of the film describes as a marriage, but for what all intents and purposes is a night of sex with soldiers who are leaving, Mm -hmm. maybe multiple soldiers. It's kind of alluded to that she doesn't really know which one she married if she married one at all and the marriage is that's a requirement of this you could you cannot have people having sex in a movie in 1944 without a marriage so the marriage is the plot contrivance when you really look at the premise of what's actually going on in this is a more adventurous brave and take no prisoners thing then knocked up made 70 years later no doubt and and how about the relationship yeah. between Betty Hutton and her sister mm-hmm. the, these these two smart characters who are basically raising their dad the the and, brilliant William Demarest and yeah. the young teenager knows more about what's going on than any other character in the film yes mm-hmm. yeah it's fascinating how Sturges gets past the the censors with this, like you you said the, with the marriage requirement. There's even a line where one of the soldiers just yells out, "Hey, let's all get married!" Yes, <laughs> and it's depicted visually brilliant because you look at that shot and it's the most obvious splice in to go and justify what the hell happens <laughs> that you've ever seen. It announces how ridiculous as a cover for what's happening is, is really this thing really is. And then because you also can't have this protagonist be drunk, they have her hit her head on the light at the dance so that she has all the effects of being drunk, but we don't have to have any of the moral concerns about this proper young lady drinking. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, and they get around the fact that... They can actually come out and say the word pregnant. In the context of marriage. And they can't yeah. even show her like with a fake belly or anything. But the way that Sturgis stages the shots once she's noticeably pregnant before the miracle occurs. And by the way, I, I would like to ask you, what is the, is the miracle of Morgan's Creek the sex tuplets or is it something else? The what? fact that the climactic event occurs on Christmas <laughs> implies one particular kind of miracle. Yes, it does. Right. A babies not only are sex tuplets, but who is the father? <laughs> mm-hmm. Just the fact that he's even using it as a subject to talk about. It was it, at, at a time when mm-hmm. you're literally in the middle of a war. And if you think about all of the way that World War II was refracted in the films of that Hollywood made from 41 to 45. It is extraordinary that in this and in Hail the Conquering Hero, Sturgis talks about these things that no one else was really talking about. These marriages of convenience that happened replicated millions of times around the country. The fact that you have towns full of young women and all of the men are gone except for the Eddie Brackens. And how do they feel about it? Because uh, of all of the 
patriotic fervor and the sense of doing your duty it's it's just i think it's it's a fascinating film yes in both this and and the next film eddie bracken is is playing a young man who wants to serve who wants to go to war but because he's uh let's call him delicate, uh, kind of dweeby character who always has hay fever, or in this one he has uh, some nervous condition where uh, he sees and he he yells out, the spots, every time he gets really, really nervous, which fortunately for us happens a lot in this film. (laughs) So yeah, World War II is now kind of taking center stage in uh, Sturgis' films. And Bracken is some brilliant casting because he basically invented Gene Wilder. What what he's doing in this film is nice. reaching levels of hysterics that keep upping the ante not only on the comedy but also on how on his feelings towards Betty Hutton and just how much he's willing to sacrifice even once he knows the situation. How about the fact that he's the hero of the film and he does all these noble things for Betty Hutton and he's he is not the soldier. He is mm-hmm. not the ideal man that Hollywood would base a film on. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, we had this- talked about like we had talked about how one of the things that Sturgis had done in his in his other films that was remarkable is how he changes our expectations or he's upending our expectations. Here, I find it's amazing. One of the things that this movie does in an amazing way is how he doesn't do that with Eddie Bracken's character. Because he's the protagonist who's, from the beginning to the end, is a completely ineffectual spaz who does who has nothing to help the story along. And, and yet he saves the day. Well, what he, he saves has the day is... By exist- right, but he saves the day just by being... By, by being a placeholder. No. No, he, no. He, he, he saves the day because he, and this, this, I know this sounds corny, because he's in love. Yes. And because in the world of this film, that is actually the most important thing. That okay. while, while society is going to judge Betty Hutton's character for her unwed pregnancy, if that news were to get out, He's certainly upset that it happened, but he's not going to be judgmental about it because he is actually in love. And, and that and he, changes he risks, her character. He, he risks imprisonment, uh, imprisonment and all sorts of degradations because he's covering up for her, you know, indiscretions or, or whatever, however you want to do it. Granted, at the end, he's he has greatness thrust upon him, right. as, as Sturgis, Sturgis loves to, to point out. But the thing is, is that here's the thing that I find that it just does remarkably is that while his affections towards Betty Hutton's character is evident, his ability to rise up to any challenge, his complete inability to do that is, is consistent all the way. Like, it's, that's amazing to me because every other kind of character in that situation, you expect them to either... A, grow up, or B, learn a bigger appreciation for the world, or C, through your own quirk or your own unique ability, find a way where you can help the, where you can help the situation. In short, some way to triumph. But he, 
does not do any of these things, and the movie makes it clear that he can't do any of these things to just great effect. He's just so completely incapable <laughs> of all the all the way to the very end. Like, like I love the fact that the the funniest point in the movie for me is when Bracken's character is imprisoned, and Demers feels he to try to get him to try to give him an opportunity to do the right thing and find the biological father. He goes through so many machinations over and over and all these different permutations to try and have Bracken just go and get one over on him. And he just can't do it. He's just such a nice guy. And he's just, oh, no, I would never pull a gun on you. And just <laughs> causing increasing amounts of face palming by Demarest. <laughs> but it's completely in line with his character. Yes. Because his character is the straight and narrow guy. He's the one who wants to go see the three films at the Bijou Theater. He's the one who works in the bank because that's a solid, respectable profession. But he's also the one who has, who loses all of that when he takes a risk for Betty Hutton. And uh, I, I just, I, I think this is one of my favorites. Of, of well, I'm not, no, mind you, I'm not saying this is a, I'm not saying this is a detriment to the no, film. No, 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 no. I, I, I'm just pointing I'm out that, I'm it. just pointing out that, that you were throwing a lot of pejorative terms about Eddie Bracken's character. And I would say yeah. that, that, that Sturgis is, kind of subverting things by having this kind of nebbishy guy be the hero of the story. I agree. Yes, I it's, it, agree. Yeah, it, it, it would not have the same effect if Dick Powell was playing the role as he did in, in Christmas yeah, in Yeah, co- completely different actors. Right. Uh, and and I, I also like the meta aspect of uh, a Miracle at Morgan's Creek, where Sturgis has this taking place in the same universe as the great McGinty. McGinty is the governor of the state where Morgan's Creek takes place, and he's still answering to the boss who's on the phone, <laughs> just like before they went down to the Banana Republic. Mm-hmm. So... That gives a kind of interesting recontextualization. Like, when did the Great McGinty take place if he was still governor in 1944? Ah. When is he down in that? (laughs) When does that scene take place in the South American bar? Well, it's good to know that there is a Preston Sturges shared cinematic universe. Yeah, his use of his ensemble in all of his films, that's a wonderful universe. And and I again have to call out William Demarest in this role as the gruff, overprotective father who is so clueless and doesn't realize anything what's going on, but it doesn't stop him from barking and yelling and participating in some of the most impressive slapstick uh, I have seen there, when he goes to, to kick. kick his his youngest daughter who's being snotty. He takes a pratfall that is just Chaplin level expertise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now this is a film that defies the concept of a conventional protagonist. I like how our ostensible protagonist Eddie Bracken's character does not have an arc. And he just is one kind of emotion, and he works that emotion and his ability to affect things all the way through. Betty Hutton's character has the is the protagonist with the ostensible dramatic arc, 
where of where her attitude sort of changes response to her dramatic situation. But I feel that this is Demarest's movie because he starts off as such an such a big loudmouth character who always uh, exclaims about how the things used to be and and he gets a change of attitude towards Eddie Bracken. The drama comes from how he learns to appreciate what Bracken wants has to offer. There is this brilliant scene where Demarest wants Bracken to to marry his daughter at, at this point, but Bracken, being so, still nervous and still pretty afraid of Demarest, is freaked out as, as Demarest is cleaning his gun as he's describing what a good idea it would be to propose to his yes. daughter. Yes. And what might be the biggest laugh for me of the film is as Bracken is reaching some kind of peak nervousness, Demarest just casually switches from cleaning his gun to grabbing an even bigger gun to clean as he's explaining <laughs> yes. what he wants. Yes, that's handled so beautifully because Demarest has been so demonstrative, but just the casual way he picks up the larger gun is done so with, with no malicious intent on his part. But of course, Bracken's going to feel differently. <laughs> and then Bracken's reaction is he's been frightened and he's been nervous. He's a collection of ticks. But then after he's going to try to propose and talk to Betty Hutton's character, it's done by him just very casually walking uh, inside the house without bothering to open the screen right. door. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, Preston Surges was, was surprised by. Eddie Bracken improvised that Oh, bit. really? That, yeah. oh, that's awesome. Uh, that, that whole second is just awesome, as is, as, as is, I think, every single moment that Demarest does. Like, from his increased, like, level of being sympathetic towards Bracken, towards being um, caring towards his daughter, uh, towards his daughters near the end of the film, to just him go- jumping on a fireman's pole, but not to escape so much <laughs> as to punch out this banker who who irritated him before. He is just so wonder. He is just so wonderfully compelling, and his reaction on the possibility of six mini Eddie Brackens is was great. I've never seen someone completely faint (laughs) face forward absolutely vertical not a single not a buckle to be had there and speaking of those multiple births jeff your question is on the what's the miracle and i think that ties into what you said at the very beginning of our discussion on this movie is that the mirror is that you think the miracle might be the uh, immaculate conception you think the miracle might be that they had six kids, but I think it goes beyond the six kids to the idea of what you said earlier. It's the kind of fears and anxieties that the male culture has about female sexuality because it gets so over the top. This miracle talks of politics, every the banking, mm-hmm. finance, and it even goes international with all the newspapers. And Hitler and Mussolini are, are, are scared. <laughs> Mussolini resigned. Right, right. <laughs> Eddie Bracken wins the fucking war. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. And why, right. why did they resign? Because the female's ability to give birth. Yes. Is, mm-hmm. And replenish the war effort. You know, it, it, it's fascinating. And Sturgis underlines it for us. The editorial that uh, is in the newspaper about the 
young unwed women and the soldiers that are outside of town and the danger that this poses. Well, what's unspoken about that danger? They're, they're talking about sex, basically. Yeah. It's it's really about fear of female sexuality. It's it's fascinating. And it's a fun parlor game to to talk about getting past the censors. But the fact is that in 1944, nobody could make a film about this subject. It was forbidden. You could not talk about these things in polite company. And Preston Sturges made it happen. Yes. And how about the the name for the family? I mean, <laughs> yes. how that got past the censors? <laughs> I don't even know. Yeah. But, but yeah. I, I, it's it's so obvious a double entendre that they, they probably didn't even think of. Right. Well, maybe it works the same way that Barbara Stanwyck's character's uh, doppelganger shows up in The Lady Eve. Yes. It's still always, it can't be the same entendre. Right. It can't be the same entendre. <laughs> So the World War II home front theme continues with Hail the Conquering Hero, also released in 1944. It reunites Sturges with Eddie Bracken, who plays Woodrow Lafayette Pershing Truesmith, whose hay fever prevents him from fighting overseas with the Marines, as his war hero father did. A few white lies to his mother about his service status seems harmless enough, but when he's befriended by a group of actual Marines, the untruths quickly careen out of control. Fascinating how he returns to the Eddie Bracken well. <laughs> I, I guess uh, he felt that whatever magic was working at the Miracle of Morgan's Creek was still in effect. Well, Morgan's Creek made a huge box office. So it, it certainly is not surprising that, that, that there would be a temptation to kind of reunite much of the cast. And so a, a lot of the film is, again, the chemistry between Eddie Bracken and William Demarest. Now, there's a, it's somewhat unfortunate for me that I, I saw this immediately after Morgan's Creek because there's a level of comic manicness that we talked about in Morgan's Creek, and it's not quite reached here. There, there's still a really good chemistry. There's, there's an involving story. The two actors are, are really good together, but it's hard not to compare the two films and this tends to come out on the uh, short end of the stick when you do compare it. But when you take it on its own merits, it's actually a really fine movie. Here's what I think about hail the conquering hero. I think it's minor Sturgis. Mm -hmm. I think he walks this fine line between 
what was absolutely necessary in a film being released by a major studio in 1944, and that is kind of a, a worship of the military mm -hmm. and uh, of the rightness of everything that the military does and an unquestioning patriotism and the subversion of that concept. I don't think there is... An anti-war message in no. Hail the Conquering Hero. But it is interesting that this group of Marines, these ideals of American manhood, are so eager to lie and make up stories about fictional war heroics, which is kind of a sensitive subject when thousands of American boys are actually coming back wounded, traumatized, brutalized from war. They don't talk about stuff like that, but they do talk about it in the context of the stories they tell about the heroics that Eddie Bracken supposedly did. Mm-hmm. They're talking about him mowing down hundreds and hundreds of Japanese and it, it's really interesting. I, I, I think it, it doesn't succeed as a comedy because it, it, it's balanced too finely on that line between isn't it ridiculous that we believe that Nebuchadnezzar Bracken is actually this hero? Wait a minute. Everybody does believe that he's a hero. What does that mean about what we look up to as a hero. What does it mean to be a war hero? Is it the number of enemy soldiers he killed? Is that what a hero is? It's it's interesting. And then this concept of the relationship between the mother and the son and the mother who is waiting at home and the one Marine who triggers the, the, the plot because he's so mad at how Eddie Bracken is lying to his mom mm -hmm. and he goes and starts lying to her some more <laughs> it, it, it's I think there's a muddiness in the motivation of the characters that makes the comedy less successful yeah I, I think I liked it a, a little more than that only because I think it, it humanized the Marines because as much as World War II propaganda at the time would have just had these poster boy soldiers, these are real people, real people who have all the foibles of all of us here at the home front. And I have to think that when that, veterans, that, sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt, but just the fact that he would acknowledge that these soldiers have foibles. Mm-hmm is rare in a in a studio film of the period. Right, because we're we're in the middle of the war. We're in peak propaganda time. And and, and as you said, I mean the movie is is in no way against the war. Right. But it, it does try to humanize it a little bit. And I think it's interesting also how Similar to uh, when we talked about Nashville in our last conversation on Robert Altman and uh, the idea of family being the thing that is sacrosanct as the American ideal, here the one thing that cannot be touched that is put above all else is a mother's love for her son. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of interesting. And uh, um, I like the character of the mayor who says at one point, in a couple of years, you won't be able to swing a cat without hitting a hero. Mm -hmm. And 
it, it's one of those ambiguous lines that could be read in a multiple of, of ways. I mean, it could mean that there will be many heroic acts done by average Joes in every town in America, or it could mean that war breeds these fraudulent shysters who take advantage of the cult of patriotism. I think you have to kind of look at the negative connotation when you consider that people who are legitimately considered heroes are not considered targets for your cat to be thrown. In other words, it's meant to be a sarcastic a sarcastic jive that, like, wherever direction you wave this un- unwanted thing, you're going to find the hero. So I find it looks towards the... It aims towards the negative for me. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because it, it kind of brings up the concept of, of what is society's reverence for for heroism and i i guess while that's a really fascinating question i don't think sturgis follows through and and that's why i I find it to be uh, a less successful film i mean you guys think that like when at the conclusion of the movie they just decide that he's suitable enough to be mayor is satisfying or do you think it's a, like one step to absurdism too far of following the theme of like well good enough oh no i th- i think it's very consistent with what sturgis has been saying all along completely because look at the great mcginty the great mcginty shows an even more unlikely rise uh to political fortune and now in this case you have through this series of screwball misunderstandings and lies being built upon lies to the point at which it's easier to just go with the fake story and raise that person up than to try to go back and discover what uh, the the real truth of the matter was. Hmm. Yeah, it's fa- I think it might be a fascinating contrast to a film that Clint Eastwood did a couple years back called The uh, uh, Flags of Our Fathers. It was paired with Letters from Iwo Jima. And that was a very nuanced, dramatic tack on people who were involved in the war effort. But the emphasis done by the military was how they were for promotional purposes back home. Mm -hmm. And their conflicts between the heroics they were being displayed as doing and what they actually went through. I think Hail the Conquering Hero is almost like a companion film to The Miracle of Morgan's Creek because they... Besides both starring Eddie Bracken, they they kind of cover similar ground. And I think also it's interesting because the the movie theater is one of the central locations of Morgan's Creek where Eddie Bracken is supposed to meet Betty Hutton and she goes off with the soldiers and leaves him there by himself until early the next morning. And then there isn't a an equivalent scene in Hail the Conquering Hero But in a throwaway shot where they're walking down the street of the town, they pass the small town movie theater. And what is on the marquee but the miracle of Morgan's (laughs) Creek? Nice. (laughs) Still playing with the form. Yeah, yeah. So so even, (laughs) even in a throwaway bit of background set dressing, he's making these... meta comments and uh, expanding his universe. So Hail the Conquering Hero is the last of this amazing run 
of genre-altering, mostly gigantic hits from Preston Sturges that take us just really four years of uh, 1940 to 1944. Mm. And it is quite the record yeah, what do you think brought that to an end? Uh, I can tell you exactly what brought it to an end. What was uh, it? It was, it was the film that he made before The Miracle of Morgan's Creek, but Paramount refused to release until after Hail the Conquering Hero. The drama, the great moment, which effectively ended Sturgis's career at Paramount. Now, that film came out also in 1944 and is a non-comedy, a biopic about Dr. William Thomas Green Morton, which unlike, while it sounds, it it actually is his real name, (laughs) a dentist who pioneered the use of ether in anesthesia. In a series of flashbacks, we follow his career as a dentist and the events that lead up to his big discovery. Now, this is an attempt of not having a guy having greatness thrust upon him, but someone who has achieved greatness, and from where does this greatness uh, spring from? And it is maybe one genre too far. (laughs) It's a really unusual film, and I have to say, I enjoyed it a lot more than I thought I would. He has some jarring juxtapositions of moods where he's telling this straightforwardly earnest story of this man's struggle against the medical establishment and his uh, struggle to get his uh, invention patented and then the great and noble sacrifice that he makes to save the life of this young girl and the uh, ambiguity of the incident that the title refers to. The fact that it's a period piece taking place in the 1830s and 1840s, uh, that it's based on a true story. But there are these strange moments of Sturgis slapstick when William Demarest first gets the wrong dosage of of ether and he has a hysterical reaction or the one doctor who is using laughing gas and the, the... slapstick shenanigans surrounding that. Uh, I didn't realize it was like college procedure in those days where if you just don't like somebody, just grab every school book that you can find and start hurling it at them. (laughs) Right. (laughs) This film had a lot of studio interference. Yes. And sometimes you only realize that because you read about it. But this is a film where I think you can tell while watching it Ah. that there's too many hands involved uh, because it does seem like these radical shifts in tones are not an authorial intent. No, I think you're right. Because various scenes work on their own. Joel McRae is very good as the lead. Uh, you, the, the comic moments are funny, but they just don't belong 
where they are and there's no transitions to help us lead to help us travel from comedy to drama and back again we're just shoved into a new scene that often feels like it's from an entirely different film yes and also um Al, you you mentioned that it was a 1944 film. That is actually when the film was produced and made. It was not actually released in the theaters until 1946. Once World War II had ended, after Paramount had taken control away from Sturgis and re-edited it. And I don't believe there is a director's cut available. I don't think Sturgis... I think he lost control early enough that... The, the studio basically shelved it for two years. Right, and it's interesting to ask wh- why the comedy? Because you do have Preston Sturges's stock troupe of comic supporting actors all there. And on the occasions when the film veers into comedy, it makes some sense. But you would think if they really wanted to hit home on, on the drama of it, on the character, on, on the biopic elements that more would have been changed. The scenes, I don't know where the intent for the producers, which direction was it towards the more the biopic side, towards the more like, hey, you're the comedy guy, do the comedy side. But the scenes definitely show there's certain points where you see the person who in the standard biopic formula is meant to be the antagonist, the rival. Yes. And at two or three sections, it has a character, this character just shows up, says, in effect, I'm going to be your rival, and then <laughs> literally turns around and walks off screen, not to be seen for one or two flashbacks from then on. It's It looks like a, a hack job of editing on that point. Well, you know, the, the, the film has a, a really fascinating backstory. In a certain degree, the great moment... Is Preston Sturgis's Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? In the sense that he, <laughs> he wanted to make a drama. He wanted to tell the story about this man. It's, I believe, the only Sturgis screenplay that is based on another work. It's based on a biography of the doctor that was... A pretty big biography in pop culture in the 1920s and 30s. Ah. But Paramount hated the the subject. They hated the fact that Sturgis wanted to make a drama. They hated the rushes that they were seeing. That's eventually why they took control of the film away from Sturgis. They um, re-edited it and they put it on the shelf after the completion of filming, he went on and started Miracle at Morgan's Creek, did all of that. That was the huge hit. Then made Hail the Conquering Hero. That, I think, was also a, it was a, hit. a, a yeah. hit. But as a result, uh, it, it took two years before, in '46, The Great Moment was released. It was a critical and box office bomb and gave Paramount the rationale that they needed to cut Sturgis loose. Huh. I'm very partial towards movies that aim for the stars, and if they don't quite work, it's still something I want to go and check out and experience more than a competently 
done mediocrity. Oh, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Al. And, and I think the fact that a minor Sturgis is still better than 90% yeah. of anything else that's out and this there. Is, and, and honestly, I also respond to how the different ways that this film does not work I has a fascination for me. I have to say that his direction it can't be faulted that badly because when there are certain dramatic beats, dramatic scenes, such as in the surgery, they're handled very well, mm-hmm. I think. When the comic stuff is about as madcap as some of Sturge's best scenes in his, his previous movies. But the two are such at odds that I actually get this perverted sorts of comedy to it. Like, to see all these crazy things that are happening, like when he starts his dental practice by jumping on top of a guy and putting and bringing up an increasingly large <laughs> series of drills, causing his first patient to scream in terror. <laughs> I mean, it just reminds me of, like, imagine if you have an Adam Sandler movie where Adam Sandler plays Jonas Salk. <laughs> but he spends the time just fondling the class and going, I'm a Kieran Polly, yo, Kieran Polly. Or like, what, what, why? Why Why is this happening? <laughs> and it, if for, there's a really fun cosmic coincidence, I find, when William Demarest takes the wrong version of Ether and starts running around and jumping on people because it concludes with him uh, hilariously and dementedly jumping through a window which harkens back to a famous after-school special starring Helen Hunt about the dangers of taking LSD. <laughs> she takes a hit of LSD, and since this is a reefer madness level appreciation of the drug subject, it causes her to cry in a demented rage and jump out a window. <laughs> yeah, and that, that's yeah. based on the story of Art Linklater's daughter, who, who famously did uh, commit suicide. Hmm. Yeah, uh, but it, those two scenes, as, as they are filmed, they both have an equal level of hilarity at completely di- completely different purposes. They're, yes, they're, although uh, although the, the Helen Hunt hilarity was not uh, conscious. Not that, intentional, that, though. That, no. yeah, not, thank you, not intentional. No, no it's like, as, as Weird Al Yankovic talked about his own show, we're like a Prince concert. But we're intentionally funny. <laughs> nice. <laughs> um, and there's one point where I think the studio had a pretty heavy hand is when Joel McRae, who's a little bit miscast as a scientist, he's more dedicated. He's more believable when he's shirtless pulling a plow around in the early okay. parts of the movie. As dentists are wont to do. E- exactly. Exactly. There's a point where he's trying to make a discovery and... There is a Sturgis moment where he's reading through the book and the uh, a big, uh, gigantic book, and it says, "Ether, see vapors of comma ether." Oh yeah, that that <laughs> that moment is is very Sturgisy and and screwball. I'd actually forgotten about it until you mentioned it. Although the constant use of on-screen written That's narration stu- yes. seems to me more of a studio thing than a Sturgis thing, because maybe yes, there wasn't a lot of confidence that people would be able to follow what's going on. Right, I, I think you're totally right. It's both superimposed on screen. And narrated, like, see, see? Like, <laughs> so that's... Um, yeah. And here's the thing, is this is an interesting topic. I have given zero thought to the idea that there is somebody who invented the anesthesia that everybody who goes through a medical procedure now uses. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting topic. There's enough good scenes here that you could kind of see the skeleton 
of a much better film, but but it just doesn't happen. Yeah, there de- no, there's definitely elements there that have some real quality to it. Like the very final image in particular is, I think, awesomely represented as the the girl who you mentioned earlier, Brad, who is suffering and causes Joel McRae's character's ultimate decision to submit the submit to ether she is for this total like noirish light is appearing in a diagonal shaft of life on her uh, on her hospital gurney and it's in a in a hallway and as as mccray is talking to her and this makes his decision suddenly the side doors open up and that's the surgical area and he walks in to give the hand to ether with both hands to the doctor in a way that evokes actually a very famous painting about the delivery of surgery under ether so it's showing how he literally gets into the picture of history in a really, really nicely presented way. The great moment was the last straw for the executives at Paramount. And they put an end to his streak of eight films in four years. Uh, a remarkable, I don't think anyone, any writer-director has equaled the quality and quantity I mean, there have certainly been directors who have made eight strong films, but in in a four-year period, one right after the other, very impressive. That being said, Sturgis made a handful of other films before he retired and, and passed away, but he was never really part of the studio system in the way he was during this four-year period at Paramount. Right, so we're going to talk about one of those Sturgis in the Wilderness films. And you can't get wilder for multiple reasons than this <laughs> next film. For sure. It's, uh, it's The Sin of Harold Diddlebach. Harold Lloyd plays Harold Diddlebach in this 1947 film. He's an unlikely star football player in college and is recruited for the fast track to success by an advertising firm. Cut to 20 years later, he's middle-aged, still in the bookkeeping department, and loses his job. His dreams may yet be in reach, though, when he's introduced to the hazy world of drinking, gambling, and as a result of all that, circus owning. Harold Lloyd is one of the greatest silent film comedians of all time who's made many, many wonderful features in the silent film era. And this is a much, much better film to honor him than seeing Buster Keaton in Beach Blanket Bingo or as one of the card players from Sunset Boulevard. He's so much better on, uh, and to see him, to see Harold Lloyd 
birth 20 or 30 years later. Yes, this film did not do well and marked the end of Harold Lloyd's career. He didn't like working with Sturges. And it was an uh, the attempt film... at a comeback in sound for Harold Lloyd. It was kind of conceived as a sort of comeback. Right, because him. when the sound era began, all these silent stars found that some could and some couldn't adjust to the idea of having their their voices on film. And Lloyd was, after uh, this amazing run, he was considered maybe third in line to uh, Chaplin and Keaton uh, among the silent clowns, but he couldn't make that uh, transition. But here's the thing. I, I think this movie is better than its reputation. I don't think it's as good as the best Preston Sturges, but it deserved better than it got. And right off the bat, the movie does something really ahead of its time. We open with the climactic football scene from an actual Harold Lloyd film from the late 20s called The Freshman, where he played a water boy who uh, wanted his chance uh, at the football field. So the end of that film becomes the beginning of this film, and then we cut to characters newly shot from the Preston Sturges film watching the game being played all those years ago in the old Harold Lloyd film. This trick uh, has been done a couple times since then, but back in the 40s, this is pretty original filmmaking. It's an astounding trick made all the more impressive that it is an actual Penn & Teller-like trick. It starts off with a title card saying, Harold Lloyd started this movie called The Freshman. <laughs> and then it shows the part from The Freshman. And then it grafts in this new footage to give us Freshman Part 2. That not-so-fresh feeling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And very not fresh because the theme of the middle part of the film is really a midlife crisis. As we cut from this young, vital football player, Harold Lloyd, into his middle-aged office drone version, it almost seems to be playing for pathos a bit as he's mistreated and, and fired and, and basically said by the same guys who brought him in that, yeah, sometimes it's just over and it's over for you. There's a wonderful touch where he's given as part of his retirement slash firing a watch that says for 20 years of service with love (laughs) which is it's clear that it's not it was not done for retirement (laughs) that they just found whatever whatever misinscription was there we'll give it to him and call it a day but my favorite scene in the film is the transition so basically the the shift in his character to a more adventurous type, let's say, and it's the bartender scene. I don't recall the name of the actor, but there is this wonderful little performance for one scene where, where this bartender is taking so much pride in making this drink specifically for this guy in his specific situation, and he scientifically analyzes everything about what's going on to determine what to put in the drink. Right, like he would ask him questions like, summer or winter? Uh, winter, huh? Fine, then we'll add some ice to it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then 
Harold Lloyd's character is a teetotaler, has ne- never drank before, and and some of his best comic bits are his reaction to this drink, which he starts drinking a lot of, which is to act kind of nonchalant and then just randomly scream at various points. <laughs> yes, I, it needs to be said that uh, Lloyd acquits himself quite well for the sound era. There's no um, Douglas Fairbanks squeaky voice problem for him. He His voice is quite well. He delivers the dialogue in a uh, rapid-fire manner quite effectively, and when when he has this reaction to the drink, which becomes named the Diddlebach after himself, so it's custom-made <laughs> by this very accommodating bartender, he somehow manages to like extend his neck twice its length <laughs> while making a gigantic Goonie bird. I think he sounds. I think a character describes it as a dying seagull. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, a reaction that, by the way, other characters share when they partake of the Diddlebach later. Right. And it, it's handled in a quite a masterful bit of comedy as he's totally acting normal or more freer through his inebriation, but every so often then yelling, and then he hears, says, Wait, who said that? Who said that? <laughs> and then he eventually says, I think that guy says it, looking at the mirror behind the bar. <laughs> So as it seems like we're very distinctly in Preston Sturge's uh, talky territory of uh, the kind of movie that would be made in, in the 1940s, eventually the film gets us to a point where Lloyd drinking has led to gambling and he wins a gigantic amount of money but doesn't recall how he spent it. And he ends up having accidentally fulfilled his childhood dream of buying a circus. At that point, we get a lot of interactions with a real lion. Yes. (laughs) And we are back to the old Harold Lloyd style of kind of the stunt comedy of the comedian in dangerous situations. Yeah. And among one thing that I think this film might be able to do to its credit is it actually helped predate this film called Roar that just came out in uh, cult film circles, which was where Tippi Hedren, her her daughter, Melanie Griffith, and her family are part of a game reserve, and they try to make a story about this reserve, which is full to the brim of lions who are hanging around the cast. This has a legend of how many people, including would-be director John DeBont, got mauled and injured by these lions who are right next to the cast and the crew. So there, you want to talk about meta levels, Jeff, there's scenes in here and in the sin of Harold Diddlebach where they're doing comedic bits, but you are sitting there in rapt attention as the what the hell of this lion just paws in the raw direction? They're not gonna, guys, gonna not gonna be in the next scene. It doesn't matter how well trained that lion was; yeah. they are at close quarters. And in fact, there was an incident. Harold Lloyd did get bit on the hand, but it turned out he had some prosthetic fingers from an earlier accident, and so he got bit there. <laughs> yeah, for those guys who don't know, it's a very famous bit of lore about Harold Lloyd is that he did so many stunts, as Keaton did and as Chaplin did, but he did many of those stunts with only having just a, some fingers on, on his hand due to an earlier injury. This includes hanging off the ledges of one of his most famous features, Safety Last, which is referenced in Diddlebach. If you ever want, looked at Safety Last and go... You know, that's a really amazing, tense, and funny sequence, but it needs more lion. 
Diddlebach will give that for you. <laughs> There's a way where Lloyd, his uh, trusty companion, and his lion trusty companion are in all different configurations of hanging off a leash and hanging <laughs> off a ledge in a real fun circus permutation of the safety last premise. Yes, just just a surprisingly enjoyable film. Mm-hmm. I can I can say one thing. What little I know about the sin of Harold Diddlebach is that it was made uh, under the auspices of RKO, which at the time was uh, led by Howard Hughes. No, that's right. And Preston Sturgis and Howard Hughes did not get along at all. So this was the only Preston Sturgis movie that was produced and financed uh, and distributed by RKO. However, Hughes was complaining about Sturgis to Daryl Zanuck, who basically called up Preston Sturgis and said, come to MGM and make a movie with me. And the deal that they cut, which was only for one or two films, I believe, resulted in Unfaithfully Yours, which was released by MGM. Released in 1948, stars Rex Harrison as a famous symphony conductor with a younger wife who he claims to trust completely. When he asks his brother-in-law to keep an eye on her while he's gone, said brother-in-law has the opposite impression and hires a detective to follow her. When Harrison learns what the detective saw, his thoughts turn to ever more elaborate ways to deal with his wife. I really thoroughly enjoyed this film, even though it's kind of all over the map. The more I think about it, the more curious I am. And it's got a really interesting structure and some pretty dramatic camera movements, including what I believe is a fairly famous shot as the conductor is beginning to imagine his three elaborate scenarios that he imagines, each accompanied by a corresponding piece of music, classical music that he happens to be composing. The first fantasy, the camera cranes in from the back of the orchestra all the way into the conductor's iris inside his eye so that we are seeing what's in his imagination and it's a very dramatic it's the kind of shot that i don't i can't think of any other director maybe hitchcock would have done something that dramatic but uh, sturgis pulls it off rex harrison gives a fascinating performance in this film and i couldn't help thinking like this is young Henry Higgins. Hmm. Uh, I kept thinking about My Fair Lady, but that's what I associate Rex Harrison with. Uh, Maybe other people see this film and think, oh, a young Dr. Doolittle, who knows? (laughs) But uh, um, I thought that it was uh, really fascinating how he has three separate fantasies that we as the audience witness. And then he goes home and he tries to enact them, but everything is farcical and slapsticky and every 
possible Murphy's Law goes into effect and goes wrong for the man. Right, because in his fantasies, it's all like clockwork. It's all going according to plan. And 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 it all happens so smoothly. Right, right. Even when he tries different scenarios where he's more of the martyr than the person who's uh, gotten his revenge. But... You're right. That that last sequence, uh, the extended slapstick sequence, is interesting because it goes on a long time. Yes. And, uh, really, mm-hmm. and and without any dialogue. I mean, there. I, I didn't time it, but there might be a, a a ten minute section where Rex Harrison is trying to set. It, it's this elaborate, almost screwball hmm. situation. Where he is trying to record a record of a voice that will be sped up to sound like a woman screaming murder to set up his assistant for his elaborate revenge fantasy. We get an echo of that scene in The Great Moment where he's looking up all of the different things... Uh, and is brought to different sections of the reference book when he is trying to work his record recorder. And it's like, see diagram on page six. It's so simple to use, it operates itself. And of course, the diagram on page six is like (laughs) the inside of a nuclear reactor blueprint. It's so elaborate, it's absolutely ridiculous. And there's a brilliant bit of the screen just showing a paragraph of the directions and it says in order to change the speed just turn the mandal and flip the frommengammer switch (laughs) so that it turns towards the inside it's this kind of technical gobbledygook Mm -hmm. that is really really funny and then harrison is there's this extended bit of slapstick but it's slapstick that actually works, even though it, it it's extended for this long time. There's an interesting thing about Sturgis. A lot of his slapstick is not necessarily cinematic. It the, the, there's a there's a strange kind of sped up quality. If you look at when they fall into the pool in Sullivan's Travels, when Barbara Stanwyck trips Henry Fonda, mm-hmm. there's this weird like sped up thing that happens. And I think he does it because when things go faster, they're funnier. But it's very obviously a cinematic thing that you, as an audience member, notice. Yet, in Unfaithfully Yours, he takes his time, and he allows Rex Harrison to take the time to destroy multiple wicker chairs and have light bulbs fall on his head mm-hmm. and have a break apart roulette wheels and all of the, the damage that that's done after we've seen these elaborate fantasies. I don't know. It's a fascinating movie and I can't stop thinking about it. It also has a rhyming section about how technology goes quote unquote wrong in the miracle of Morgan's Creek, where you're introduced to Betty Hutton's character Seeing some incredibly deep bass, but what she's really doing is thinking. <laughs> yeah, she's lip syncing to right. this incredibly weird song. Yeah. Yes. I really liked once he brings in this incredibly deranged contraption for recording. That's a minor marvel. I don't know if uh, Harold Lloyd or some other uh, silent classics helped inspire him. Just how he's trying to get it to record, and sometimes it would take this vinyl platter and move it to the side, you just drop it where it would break. And sometimes it would move it off to the side, 
and then flip it over and then move it back to the original you know, side. It, it's, it's interesting. I don't think about this filmmaker in relation to Sturgis in any other of his films, but I found that to be a particularly Chaplin-esque moment hmm. mm-hmm. in terms of the the comedy around the mechanism and the, yes. the, the physical repetition. Like I couldn't help thinking about modern times. And I couldn't help thinking about playtime. It's tattoos oh, the, about technology going uh, horribly awry, albeit for a much more pulpier purpose. Right. <laughs> mm, I totally see what you're saying, Jeff, about how it's paced in a different way. And I think the way it's paced is effective to contrast his earlier sequence where everything is smooth. So you just, for example, you take this contraption in a wonderful gliding motion that appears to weigh nothing. And he as he delicately, like, Twir- almost twirls away to balance it on a ledge. In in reality, he's pulling, pause, pull it, pull it, and then in a wonderful shot, you just see the far window, and suddenly he enters the frame, the giant thing's been pulled too far, it just crashes <laughs> up yes, through, uh, through the window. And, and while we're giving Rex Harrison a lot of deserved praise, I, I really feel it important to point out how great a job Linda Darnell does, because in those three fantasy sequences the one where he kills her the one where he writes her a check magnanimously and the one where he tries to play russian roulette she is acting like he imagines her guilty self would act and she does some really subtle stuff in those scenes you see her looking over at rex harrison's secretary tony uh you see her flirting with him on the phone when she thinks she's alone before she's murdered. You see her acting in in a way that's dramatically different from the way her character acts when it's not in Rex Harrison's fantasies, in which she is almost the perfect wife who is loving and forgiving and gracious. And it's the strength of her performance, I think, that um, allows Rex Harrison to kind of be redeemed at the end. Well, one of the reasons all this works so well is because it's really set up well earlier in the film. You see their relationship uh, being presented as ideal, but then you also kind of see the first signs of jealousy are planted, and there's some really hysterical back and forth between Rex Harrison and the idea of these detectives following his wife uh, around, which absolutely appalls him, and his berating and and absolute uh, disdain for these uh, flatfoots are is or he really calls a, them foot pads, foot pads yeah, just yeah. a source or, of great comedy. And how about the the brilliant touch of having the detectives be so in love with classical music Mm -hmm. and such a fan of him to the point where like the way you handle handle i mean that's that's a perfect sturgis Mm -hmm. line right Right. there Mm -hmm. Uh, and just the amount of dialogue that harrison spews out at a mile per hour is really impressive because it's all this kind of highbrow snooty stuff but but as you're listening you realize this all had to be written this is this is some amazing levels of writing going on Mm -hmm. this is my favorite rex harrison film i think in a way that might be peak harrison (laughs) because he's so effectively Campy. He's ca- he 
turns the campo meter like at a 25%, 33%. What do you level. mean when you describe him as campy? He's over dramatic in such an interesting way when he delivers his lines. He's so extra flustered when he uh, is frustrated by his schemes. And just the way he delivers his angry rants is not quite at the level where he's about to whip his cape and say, I said good day, sir, and storm off. But it's almost there. (laughs) And it's this kind of, I find this kind of mania hanging underneath that I take to just really great comic effect. There's two points, in fact, where, as we were talking on the meta level, where it works just really wonderfully. <laughs> One is which, when his wife accuses, uh, just joshes with him to say, oh, where have you been? You've been hanging out with girls? And he just goes, girls? Ha! <laughs> And, and another one where he, where his wife and his uh, uh, friends try to congratulate him on the performance, and he just stands up ramrod straight, his shoulders set, and he says, I think it was overdone, and slams the door. <laughs> so he turns on the heat to just get this level of, whoa, whoa, this guy's, he's not quite into Vincent Price territory, but there's some ham getting delivered on this salad for me. The film does really nicely, especially the first time you see it, because you don't quite realize the section that's a first fantasy is such until you see him laughing maniacally in the courthouse. I mean, I I understood when the camera zoomed into his eye that we were going inside his brain, but maybe on some level I was primed for it. Um, I, I I didn't really know a lot about this film going into seeing it, but maybe that technique has been done in so many other films. You have a pan into the character's eye, and then the next thing you see, the next image you see after that is what's inside. Like, the, there's a language of film right. that I think... M- Unfaithfully yours might be the first instance mm-hmm. of, mm-hmm. but um, well, here's where I here's where I was led. Here's sure, where I was led to a different impression. Was this is maybe one of the earliest movies where I've seen where it does this idea, which I thought is awesome about like the guy in his head thinks of this ultimate scheme where everything's going to work out right, and then finds a reality is hilariously inadequate towards what he was imagining. Right? Oh yeah. However, like many movies would try to be to do like some expressionistic touches when he's in the dream world to show that it is slightly different. But here on both sides of the close-up, his behavior is about as campy and situations are just as crazy. Before any of that happens, he's literally waving a flaming piece of paper in front of a detective's nose and so angry with his brother-in-law, he's literally ripping the sleeves off of the guy's jacket. So things yes. are already pretty zany before things get zany in a fantasy way. Yes, and uh, uh, I should point out that said brother-in-law is uh, once again uh, Rudy Valley. Right. Uh, also, uh, uh, once again, playing a kind of starched shirt multi-millionaire with... The uh, pince-nez glasses that that has a couple of comedic uh, moments. Yeah, that... he's really working those. He's really working those uh, um, 
his performance cries out for a monocle, I think. I, I, I really liked the repartee between him and uh, uh, Linda Darnell's sister, played by Barbara Lawrence. She has some great wisecracking lines. And, and it kind of subtly uh, makes sense why, when he was asked to keep an eye on Rex Harrison's wife, that his mind immediately went to hire detectives, see what she's doing wrong, even though Rex Harrison just meant, hey, make sure she's not bored, take her out for dinner sometime. Mm-hmm. But uh, when you see his relationship with his wife, why he might Im- his mind would immediately become suspicious, which would infect uh, Rex Harrison's character. Mm, if Henry Fonda's character from The Lady Eve just had a scintilla of self-awareness about how, wait a minute, why is this gal hanging around with me? <laughs> then then maybe he might behave the same way that this guy's behaving in terms of hiring detectives and so on. One thing that we were talking about through the course of um, Sturgis's films is these power dynamics between men and women. And here I think... It's kind of interesting take on this. There's a moment said earlier in the movie where the conductor, it's made clear that this conductor, well, it's the men who are going to drive this song. And it leads to this really fun, continuous shot of how Rex Harrison is getting more and more emotionally involved in the symphony, in the rehearsal. As the camera moves around, you see how the woodwinds and how the strings are playing. And it gets to the harp section where the two ladies are filing their nails and one of them might be actually painting her nails. So the idea that the guys are meant to be conducted is done in a humorous way. But I think it's like Jeff, you had said about the Lady Eve, about a guy's sense of loss of control. This is a one of the things that makes this movie really cool is it's a proto version of Eyes Wide Chuts. Shuts level of uh, mania involving through dreams. But ultimately, the most, the biggest impression I get about it, this film is just how audaciously dark it is. Like you said, Jeff, about how it gives a moment of redemption for the character at the end, but this is redemption for a guy who straight up had a psychopathic fantasy about brutally murdering his wife and then had another one about committing suicide. It's yeah. just amazing how dark this movie is. It's pretty dark. And I mean, not just killing his wife, but elaborately plotting to implicate his assistant after brutally slitting her throat. I mean, I have to say that that scene shocked me when I first saw it, especially in the context of it is being played both for drama and in a really kind of weird way for laughs when when the slapstick, you know, if you take a step back and you realize he's fumbling around trying to find a means to set up his assistant after he intends to kill his wife. I mean, it's kind of crazy to think about that this is the subject of the slapstick comedy and... It's incredibly audacious. And there's it's, a two it, comic bit. There's a comic bit about him with the him trying to see if the razor blade is sharp enough. Played for laughs, but then you think the intent, and it kind of catches in your throat. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is much more graphic than one expects from any 1948 movie, let alone a 1948 comedy. 
this movie has since acquired a pretty stellar critical reputation. In in hindsight, people kind of love this movie for its innovations and its, as you say, audaciousness. But it, it wasn't the, the comeback that Sturges needed. Although it was eventually remade in the 80s, uh, starring Dudley, Dudley Moore. Moore. Yes. But Sturges, uh, unfortunately, never did have another shot at real success uh, in his future films. He, he did make a number of other films. Uh, the Beautiful Blonde from Bashful Bend. Another one called Vendetta. And uh, a film uh, apparently he uh, shot in, in France called uh, The French. They are a funny race. None of these became kind of, are even widely available at this point. So Unfaithfully Yours kind of marks the last high watermark of Preston Sturgis. It's really kind of fascinating because it's like his greatest films existed within the studio system, but at the same time it kind of suffocated his artistic ambitions as well i think he had the this mixture of dark and light that might have been a little bit too ahead of its time uh, uh if he was making films say in the 70s and 80s that would have been a completely different thing but he wasn't he was making films in the 40s and or uh, uh, right. a handful that's, in the early and in some... up, I mean, unfaithfully yours is decades ahead of his time that there i think i read somewhere that quentin tarantino said that's one of his top 10 mo- favorite movies well i can understand that because tarantino not unlike preston sturgis will often although tarantino kind of does the flip where, where tarantino will inject some humor in a very darkly serious plot while Sturgis will have comedy with like a, a couple of scenes of, of dark seriousness. It, mm-hmm. it's, Nicely put. It's interesting. I also think that Sturgis thrived in that kind of gray area of double and triple entendre where you have to kind of push the envelope of what the censor will allow. But I think once the 1960s came out and um, uh, the, the, the Hayes office was pretty much shut down and the, the self-censorship of the studios pretty much died off, probably by 67, 68... Maybe Midnight Cowboy in 69 is the real beginning of no more restrictions on film content. But I think Sturgis's strong point was in playing with language and that mixture of getting away with something that's sort of under the radar. I don't know if without the censor to push against mm-hmm. if he would be a successful. That's an interesting point. In the way saying that environment made the audiences receptive to something like that because that in a way doomed Lubitsch's films. It did not they did not get the reception that his films from the forties did as as much. And Billy Wilder, when he tried to make things more explicit, even he hit upon the rocks when in his later films. Well, Lubitsch made movies before the code, didn't he? Oh yeah. yeah. He was he made movies in the silent era. Right. But but here here's the thing is that 
the censorship of, of Golden Age Hollywood was very much a double-edged sword. I mean, it was censorship. It did stop content that should have been out there from getting out there. At the same time, it also energized a certain creativity in these artistic directors who utilized getting around the censors as a way to make their message even more pointed because they couldn't say it outright. They had to say it coded. And well put. we remember these movies so well, sometimes because they had to say it coded. And this is also a director who was clearly very thoughtful upon how the his work was meant to be taken in. He He went meta so many times and it's apparent in so many of his films that you're dealing with these particular restrictions and there are these rules that need to be broken or perverted and that impish sensibility that inspired him from films like The Great McGinty Onwards just had a great, like, Margaret Dumont foil in the Hollywood studio system like in Sullivan's Travels or The Hayes Code, it's particularly in The Miracle of Morgan's Creek. Yes. So so ultimately, I think that's one of the best features, I think, of looking through his work is to just that level of creativity of surmounting and surpassing the restrictions placed upon him and giving a level of boundless energy and yet a sense of direction and sophistication towards all these different films that is something I think we can really credit and value in the work of Preston. Yeah, and to, to a certain degree, he, he was not appreciated for his genius. Uh, not unlike Orson Welles, his creative control and um, the uh, fullness of his vision in that he was in charge of his films, was pretty unique for the way that Hollywood made movies at the time. And the fact that he was able to exist in this kind of little pocket of four years at Paramount uh, is is really a, a testament to his, his groundbreaking qualities. And, and that at the same time, that brilliance might have been what prevented him from existing outside of that framework and why his career was so spotty after World War II ended, except for a handful of films, he pretty much faded away. He's really the first auteur before the uh, uh, French critics really even coined the term. And I know that Preston Sturgis was one of the Cahiers du Cinema guys' uh, favorite uh, directors. Right, along because they recognize genre as something that's important. A lot of more uh, American critics would have dismissed him as, oh, that comedy director. Most assuredly, mm -hmm. yeah. Jeff, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, my God. This Al one. and Brad, thank you so much for having me on. I, I hope I uh, uh, added to the conversation. It is a delight to be on the Director's Club. And we're always glad to have you here. Now, where can people hear and read about your work online on, on films? Uh, well, as you stated, 
ages ago at the beginning of this podcast, Al. I am the co-host of Fresh Perspective, which is also broadcast on the Now Playing Network. Uh, we have been around for two years, and we'll be recording our newest Fresh Perspective podcast uh, in the next week, and then um, continuing on through the year. I post film reviews on letterboxd.com. My handle is my first name backwards, F-F-E-J. I try to keep it down to 400, 500 words per review, but I also make a commitment to review every movie I see. Uh, nice. I, I want to add that for this podcast, you put a review up for every one of Preston Sturges's films that you got a chance to see. Yes, I, 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 I have to uh, admit that I did not get an opportunity as of recording time to see The Sin of Harold Diddlebach. But I will watch it and will eventually uh, write that review as well. I saw other films besides Preston Sturgis films in between. So there will be a sprinkling of other film reviews in there. But you can search by title or you could just go in chronological order. Mm -hmm. Well worth checking out as well. Thank you very much, gentlemen. It was my pleasure to be here. Thank you. you. And uh, thanks for you guys for listening. If you have particular favorite scenes or favorite moments or favorite Preston Sturgis films or want to go and pass along a comment about how you think we did in our exploration of his work, you can send us an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. The Directors Club is found in multiple places on the net, from iTunes at Directors Club Podcast, Spotify at Directors Club Podcast, Facebook at Directors Club Podcast, Twitter at DC podcast and our episodes are available online at our website directorsclubpodcast.com thanks again for listening and hope to catch you on another episode of the directors club That's uh, very, very pleasant. Just a little dividend. Uh, just a drop. You'd uh, never guess that you'd make so many different flavors in it. Like a poem. I suppose there is some alcohol in this. I will not deceive you. There is. You'd never know it. That's where the skill comes in. What a scientist. There ain't hardly another mixer in town could do your thing like that. Oh, boy. Lovely. Just like velvet. What was that yelling? Did you hear something just then? <coughs> to innocence. And still more innocence. What is that yelling I keep hearing? Or is it my imagination? I wouldn't drink too many of them too fast if I were you. You know, just beginning and all. It ain't as if anyone ever drank a little box before. You can't tell what it'll do to you. This lemonade. 
shake up another batch of it. Shake up a bucket. Oh, wait a minute. What are you talking about? What are you looking at? Who, me? Nothing. Hurry it up. Uh, 